Welcome to episode 62 of Central Intelligence Cinema. Today, the CIC are presenting their first listener-requested review of 2024. Thanks again to our anonymous agent in the field. This time, Jason and I will be reviewing the 2001 movie Spy Game, starring Robert Redford and Brad Pitt. But without further ado, take it away, Pierce. Beg your pardon, forgot to knock. Welcome to the CIC, initiating security clearance. My name is Napoleon Solo. Bond. James Bond. Natasha Romanoff. Ethan Hunt. Looks like Elsa Faust. Identity confirmed. Now, pay attention, 007. Welcome to Central Intelligence Cinema, a podcast dedicated to spy movies and secret agent pop culture. Your mission, should you decide to accept it. Do you expect me to talk? I'm in the middle of an interrogation. This moron is giving me everything. Yeah, baby! Special agent, you're not having a very special day, are you? But remember, nothing ever goes according to plan. Tom, what do you think you're doing? Keeping the British hand outside. The state will self-destruct in five seconds. Recording from an undisclosed location in a military tent in Vietnam that smells mm-mm good with that cooking Vietnamese food. <laughs> it's a Central Intelligence Cinema Podcast. I'm Jason Greenberg, and with me, as always, Ben Esslinger. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Jason. And welcome back to the CIC, the spy movie podcast that is currently getting free lunches in the CIA's cafeteria using Andrew Unger's credentials. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> Yum. <laughs> Welcome back. We are uh, back in the uh, undisclosed location. It's a chilly one out there. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tidbit nipply, as they say. But uh, thankfully, uh, Jason's tauntaun did not freeze. Nope. At, nope. The, at the first marker. He, sure he made it all the way here. None of you are going to have to see me in hell. Yeah. <laughs> indeed, indeed. But uh, we are back and we are here to talk about Spy Game. Spy Game? We're going to get some hot Robert Redford and Brad Pitt action going on today. So, so basically Robert Redford on Robert Redford action? <laughs> yeah. Is this a, uh, I believe it's a time travel movie where Robert Redford goes back in time to meet with his former self <laughs> to give him ideas about what he should be doing as a spy. You know, it's funny. I, I kind of mentioned <laughs> something along those lines after we had chatted about this. Yeah. And my wife was like, so... Is Brad Pitt playing the younger version of, of Robert Redford in this? I'm like, since he's, I mean, yes, he's, <laughs> he's morphing into him anyway, right? I mean, I, I've said for years that they should remake every movie that either with Paul Newman, every movie should be remade with Tom Cruise, and with Robert Redford, every movie should be remade with, with Brad, Brad Pitt, Pitt, so that you can eventually get a new version of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. That'd be amazing, you know. I mean, I, I, we could skip all the other ones and just do Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, yeah. I mean, they're both old enough now, I guess. But <laughs> speaking of old, I have some problem with time travel math here in general. Oh, boy. <laughs> and I'll get into that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I've got a, a book worth of notes in front of us. Should we just jump into this sucker? We probably better. I can train you as an agent. Central intelligence. You'd be working for me, mostly undercover. Undercover? You work for the CIA. What is your connection? I have no connection. I thought spies drank martinis. Scotch. Never less than 12 years old. This better be the best damn breakfast I ever had. It's delicious. You love it. Of course, we have to make it to the end of the aisle. You first. Age before beauty. Never 
risk your life for an asset. You want to mix business and pleasure? Make sure you keep it in that order. Did you mark her, or was it the other way around? Why getting played? Oh, you're accusing me of lying to you. Get out of the way! I give you an order, you take it. It doesn't get any easier. Don't ever question me again. Don't tell me that! Don't tell me that! Don't just trade these people like they're baseball cards. It's not a game. It's exactly what it is. And it's serious and it's dangerous. And it's not one you want to lose. You go off the reservation. I will not come after you. What else do I need to know? Put away some money so you can die someplace warm. Okay, Spy Game, released in 2001, directed by Tony Scott of Tony Scott fame. I the mean, Tony Scott. The Tony Scott. Rest I mean, in peace. Rest in peace, Tony Scott. Director of Top Gun, The Hunger, Beverly Hills Cop 2, Days of Thunder, Enemy of the State, True Romance, Crimson Tide, Man on Fire. It goes on and on and on. Go look him up. He's done tons. He's done a few. He's done just a few. Also, his brother is something of a movie maker. Something, you know. He's, the, he's made a couple of art films that you might have seen. Yeah, a couple of artsy fancy things. I mean, like, I don't know, Blade Runner or anything. Yeah, you, it, know. you know, stupid stuff like that. Stupid Alien. stuff like that, yeah. Um, <laughs> the uh, producer on the movie was Mark Abram, who did RoboCop, uh, The Thing, Dawn of the Dead, and Children of Men. Well, that's a gamut, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The movie was originally supposed to be directed by uh, Mike Van Diem, who I looked up his resume. There's nothing on this. He's like a Dutch director, I believe, and not a whole lot on his resume. So I I guess they decided to kind of ratchet up the... uh, Tony was looking for something to do. Yeah, well, walked over and said, "You know, you know, is there a movie I could do? Is there, you got anything in the works there, Mark?" And <laughs> Mark was like, "Well, actually, I do have this one thing. You don't yeah. like doing spy movies, though, do you?" And uh, you know, apparently, he does. So. Yeah, yeah. But uh, interestingly enough, well, okay, it should be said that trivia on IMDb cannot be trusted. <laughs> <laughs> However, well, I mean, there is one particular uh, item of trivia that's uh, you know actually correct was the one about the natural. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Oh, boy. Well, I mean, I can't remember what it was. It was something like Brad Pitt wears a San Diego Padres hat, which is a baseball team from San Diego. Robert Reffer also played a baseball player in The Natural. (laughs) That is technically correct. It's not trivia. I mean, and technically it's trivia because it's very trivial. Right. But But. IMDb bringing you ridiculously (laughs) stupid things since, what, 1998? Yeah, but I digress. There's a, a bit of trivia in on IMDb about this movie that said that Brad Pitt allegedly passed on playing the title role in the Born Identity for this project. I don't know if I buy that. And quite I have, honestly, I think the Born Identity is better for not having Brad Pitt. That was in the it. whole point of Born, if I recall, was that he didn't look like he was some kind of a yeah. super He looks spy like guy. he's supposed to look like an everyman. He's supposed to look like me. <laughs> Unfortunately, he looks like Matt Damon. Exactly. But yeah, but, you know, I feel I, I just vaguely, vaguely remember like this being something that they pursued him for, particularly. Yeah. So it's like everything else. If you look at any movie, action-oriented movie, there's always IMDb trivia that says, and Arnold Schwarzenegger was asked to do this. Right. Like in the every '80s movie, <laughs> actors like Mel Gibson, Arnold Schwarzenegger, right. and Sylvester Sloan were considered to play Batman, was, and every actor that was popular at that time, right? That had muscles, right? <laughs> right. Right. Now I do know for a fact that Mel Gibson was considered to play Bruce Wayne before really? Michael Keaton. Yeah. Wow. Uh, but okay. uh, I. 
Yeah, I just imagine, you know, you get Arnold Schwarzenegger in there, you know, I'm Batman. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. One random note I wrote down here. I kind of have a beef with something that's done in this film. and it's, Only one thing? Well, okay. Well, th- there's two. There's two big ones, but we'll get to the second one here in a sec. But the first one is how heavy-handed they employ voiceover to tell the story and the flashbacks of this mm-hmm. movie. Mm-hmm. There are so many cases where they give... Redford something to say and then that leads the viewer into the beat of the story but it's actually almost repetitive because the moment you go into the story they say the exact same thing so it's like why did you even need to do this and the reason I say that is just because I am for those tens of listeners out there who haven't listened to our podcast before I do editing for television and I work in unscripted reality and that's a big no-no in unscripted reality to have like one of those interview bites where you see the guy talking to camera about what's going on at the build. And today we're doing demo at the Schleppi's house, you know, or whatever. And then they go into the scene and it's like, yeah, today we're doing demo. And they do the exact same thing in this movie, which is even worse because it's a movie. Right. <laughs> I'd like to point out now that uh, Ben's uh, cover identity is now blown because he didn't follow his uh, security protocols. How do you know that's... That now he's going to have to get a new job, so he won't be doing that anymore. How do you know that's not my cover identity? (laughs) (laughs) Your cover identity is to be your cover identity? That's right. No, we're not not playing Spiceception here, buddy. Okay. Well, anyway. All right, moving on. As far as writing goes, Michael Frost Beckner, who did Sniper and Cutthroat Island... As well as uh, David Arada, who did Broke Down Palace and then went on to write Children of Men, which kind of makes sense a little bit to me because there is some fantastic dialogue in this movie. That's the one thing I will say. And maybe they had to up their game because they knew Robert Redford was coming. But I, I think at least from a story perspective, as far as how the script was written and, and the dialogue that was written, I feel like that's one of the stronger points of this movie. Oh, I agree. Although some. Part of me has to wonder if some of that was just Redford bringing his own it could Redfordness be. Well, to it. yeah, because he's such a smart guy Yeah, that he probably <laughs> got his lines and went, uh, no, and no, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I'm going to rewrite this here. You know what? I'm just going to wing it. I'm just going to make this sound a lot smarter because I'm Robert Redford. Well, you know, and that's, the thing, you know, uh, when you jump back into, you know, my my stuff, when he's in Captain America Winter Soldier and he plays, I forget. Some sec- sort of. He's a secretary director. of something. Yeah. But Alexander Pierce. And you're like, first of all, how did you get him in this movie? Yeah. And then second of all, how does he play it so straight that he just seems like he's been there the whole time? Right. Right? (laughs) And it's almost like this character is that character from Winter Soldier. Yeah. Because it's the same level of I don't give a shit snark. Yeah, right. Very that much he has so. in Winter Soldier. I kept thinking that the whole time through. He brings it, man. And then as far as this uh, photography, that was an. I will say this movie is good for them in in a lot of ways, and photography is one of them as well. We've got Dan Mendel, who we've talked about before on this podcast. He's done a million things. He did Mission Impossible three. He's done different Star Trek movies. He's done Star Wars: The Force Awakens and The Rise of Skywalker. So he's he knows how to get a good shot. Yeah, particularly in an action oriented film. Exactly. Okay. Now, here's my other big, big, big beef. (laughs) Editing. Lordy, you know, as much as I do enjoy this movie, the editing in this movie, as an editor myself, I'm just like wanting to tear my hair out in moments here. We've got Christian Wagner, who has done a lot of stuff. And I will mention, too, at this point, that there are two parallels between this movie and, of all things, Die Another Day. Christian Wagner 
was the editor on Die Another Day. And then later on, we'll talk about the fact that that Ho Yi is the prison warden in this movie, and he was Mr. Chang from Die Another Day, the, the guy that ran the hotel, who had the guy with the camera behind the mirror in, in Pierce's hotel room and yada, yada, yada. So strange Die Another Day connection here. But but yeah, we've got Christian Wagner doing editing. He has done a lot of stuff. He's done Die Another Day, Man on Fire, True Romance. He's done a lot of stuff with Tony Scott. You, know, you forgot to mention the one thing that he did that we completely agreed made perfect sense, which was Mission Impossible 2. Yes, Mission Impossible 2, which for sure, with all the slow motion and speed rampy. And I mean, it wasn't his first movie with John Woo either, so... So there you go. The thing was, this guy, for all the shit that he does, seems like he innovated a lot of that shit. When you look at his, his resume... yeah. He probably came up with a lot of the nonsense that's so oversaturated now yeah. that it's annoying. But in this movie, it was oversaturated and annoying, and most of it was still pretty new. Well, and I'm sure in 2001, it seemed really cool and flashy. And and I was telling Jason before this podcast, before we started recording, that there are kind of basically, I like to say, two types of editors in this world. There are flash editors who can make things look really cool and really flashy, and they've they know a lot of trick. They got a lot of visual tricks up their sleeve. And then there are story editors who actually know how to put together a story and give it rhythm and that sort of thing. And often those two skills do not cross <laughs> paths very much. I tend to be the latter, and this guy is definitely the former. He knows how to make everything look sexy, or at least at the time it looks sexy, and then it doesn't age very well. Well, I'm just saying that from here on out, I expect you to use like sped up aerial shots and all your stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's just, I mean, I can do that stuff. It's just, it's so gaudy. I've seen it done on shows of similar quality. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I <laughs> One have. One of the ways I know you didn't do it. <laughs> no, I have done speed ramps. I just don't. I use them judiciously, not abusively. But I get the feeling that this is an editor who needs a strong director to, to kind of reel him back when necessary. And maybe Tony Scott just needed some ideas to get from point A to point B in this movie, especially in the transitional moments. That's the place where I have the most issue mm-hmm. is as soon as they transition to something new, especially like the flashbacks, we get speed ramps and really loud sound effects that are associated with and like a like a tape speeding up sound and and it's right. all very punchy and like you know over dramatic and well, I'm just know, like oh god. So the thing about Tony Scott, <laughs> if we were to compare him with his brother Ridley, yes, Ridley is a storyteller, yes, and Tony Scott is a movie maker, right? They're both very visual directors. Both of them could be their own DOPs. They don't need them on there. Right. And I'm sure working for them means, in that capacity, do what I want. Right. You know, yeah, it's a great idea. Do this instead. Right? <laughs> but I think that the balance is, is that Tony wants that visual. Yeah. He's got it in his head. That's what we're going to film. This is what I want to make. And Ridley's like, you know, it doesn't work for the story. It's cool and all, but off it goes. And I mean, there's a whole thing in the trivia about how Tony paid for that helicopter shot in Berlin out of his own pocket because the studio wouldn't do it. But he insisted that it needed to be in there. He had that firmly in his head. He wanted that shot. So he paid his own money to have it done. Right. And I, not saying nothing, Ridley put his own money into Alien, too, on certain things. Yeah. But- when you when you look at the caliber of <laughs> when you, what gets turned out by one and what gets turned, Tony Scott's movies, with the exception of a couple of them, maybe two, three, or four, 
are all basically action movies with a lot of that visual punch. Yeah. So this is a very flashy movie. You know, we've got some some nice... Uh, I will say the, the color grading that they do during the flashbacks works really well. I mean, the, the Beirut scenes in particular work mm-hmm. really well for me, how they kind of painted it really gray and dismal and like you kind of expect... Cold War, Again. or not, Be- not Beirut, uh, excuse me, um, Berlin. Yeah, B-E-B-E-R-B-E-L. Yeah. Well, and there's, a, there's actually a, a trivia about Beirut, too, about how they yep. said they tried to punch up the color to make it look like news footage, which yep. I even wrote down in my notes as I was watching that area. There's some moments with tanks and stuff. I'm like, is this archival? Like, it almost looked like archival footage that they pulled of tanks and stuff. And it might have been, for all I know. I did, you know. Well, and I think some of that definitely was. Yeah. Which might have been why. So you're matching everything across the board. Yeah. But it blended so seamlessly that you had to ask the question, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, a lot of times you see news or archival footage and stuff. Yeah. And you're like, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice so. try, but no. <laughs> but no. By the numbers, eh, it didn't do great. Um, you know, it paid for itself. The budget for the movie was $115 million, and the movie made $143 million worldwide. Domestically, it only did $62.3 million, so they just barely paid for this thing. But Well, you know, you think that might have had something to do with the fact that this was really a Robert Redford movie with Brad Pitt in it and not a Brad Pitt movie with Robert Redford in it? Yeah. I feel like they were, they were reaching that conjunction where Robert Redford was kind of on the downslope mm-hmm. and Brad was charting directly upwards. Yeah. And the problem was in 2001, neither, neither of these guys was Tom Cruise. So he was basically the thing in spy stuff yeah. if you weren't James Bond. So who knows? Yeah. I kind of wonder, too. I mean, 2001, that was when 9-11 happened, right? Because uh, I'm just wondering if... November 21st. So there you go. That's probably exactly what did it. It really ruined cinema after that point in time for a while. Yeah. I mean, a lot of cinema even changed. A lot of movies that were in production ended up changing because of 9-11. Yeah, they so. had to remove stuff. And New so, York shots, the, the whole nine yards. Right. So timing on this movie's release was... Not great. So that I'm sure that was part of it as well. Music-wise, uh, Harry Gregson Williams, who is kind of a giant in the world of, of film composing, he did Man on Fire, The Martian, Shrek, Spy Kids, LA Confidential. He's done a lot of stuff. Um, which <laughs> He's done a lot of Scott movies, yeah. both of them. Right. <laughs> so he did mostly pretty good there. Again, this is a this is a movie that feels a little dated due to some stylistic elements. You yeah. Know, you know, trying to be trendy at the time that it was put out. So like the the song that opens and closes the movie, I, like every time I hear that, I'm just like, oh, God, <laughs> it just it just felt so 2001. So like, right. You know, and even well, the, and it's funny because it's a movie that ba- takes place in 1991, right? Right. <laughs> so why not pick something from 91 to kick the thing right? off? I will say it was smart that they chose to do it in a slightly period style. You don't run into that being dated as you watch it now, right? It's like okay, they've time stamped this as happening all in 1991 right. and before. Um, as far as the main characters, obviously we've got. Robert Redford as Nathan Muir, playing the older version of Brad Pitt. <laughs> but not really. But not really. God, he, he carries the film. He, he really does. He, I mean, it is a Robert Redford movie. It's not a Brad Pitt movie. He just talks his way in and out of every situation, makes everybody else look stupid. I can't say enough good things about it. I mean, does it come off as plausible that... <laughs> 
<laughs> that he looks the way he does in Vietnam. Hey, man, <laughs> and, Cyber and, and solve every problem, baby. <laughs> the, some of those things. There are, there are definitely... Okay, I'll get this out of the way now so we don't have to talk about it later. Okay. But 1975, Vietnam, Brad Pitt's character, probably early 20s, right? Right. I mean, at the most... The youngest he could be is 18 if he's in Vietnam. Sure. But he's a staff sergeant, so I'm going to give him four years in the Army okay. to get to that point, okay? <laughs> Brad Pitt was born in 1961. So if you do the math, <laughs> he would have been 14 at this point. <laughs> but then we're supposed to expect that he's pushing 40 at the end. I mean, I understand it's a movie. Right. But I don't know what's more egregious, trying to accept a 39-year-old Brad Pitt at the end uh-huh. Or I'm trying to accept a 40-year-old <laughs> Robert Redford in the middle. Right. Because <laughs> sideburns really do make you look younger. Oh, Everybody sure. knows it. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, we've got uh, Brad Pitt playing Tom Bishop, uh, the younger version of Robert Redford, but not really, who does a good job, I think, you know, about the standard fare that he was doing at in 2001. Honestly, you know? he's not given a lot to work with here. Yeah. Uh, till the very end, when he has to deal with the relationship uh, and everything, he's basically just Robert Redford's robot for most of it, right? Yeah. You I know? mean, he just sort of reacts to what Robert Redford tells him to do or whatever. So a lot of his performances are very just sort of like reactionary almost. Right. The, the good bits are like, uh, you know, when he's talking about how, you know, within a couple of months he had him recruiting East Germans. And there's that one scene where yes. he's talking German to the guy in there. And he, he's just selling them, you know. Yeah. And it, he shines in moments, but he's not really supposed to be shiny in here. Right. This is Robert Redford being, I'm awesome and two steps ahead of everybody. <laughs> right. Kind of thing. Yeah. Other major characters we've got. Elizabeth Hadley, uh, played by the lovely Catherine McCormick, who was in Braveheart. Freedom! (laughs) 28 weeks. That was for you, Marty. (laughs) 28 weeks later, and she was actually in uh, four episodes of uh, Slow Horses. We've got uh, Charles Harker, played by Stephen Delon, who you may recognize as Stannis Baratheon in Game of Thrones, and... He was Alan Blunt in the new Alex Ryder TV series. Yes, and the award for I can't quite cover up my <laughs> English my accent. English accent goes to. <laughs> so yeah, he plays the uh, CIA guy who's really out to sink Nathan. And then, like I said before, we've got the prison warden that's played by Ho Yi, um, aka Mr. Chang from Die Another Day. <laughs> Troy Folger, uh, who's head of the CIA task force and work with Nathan. He's played by Larry Brigman, who is in Die Hard with a Vengeance. You know, the weird thing about this guy was every other movie I think I've ever seen him in, he's got a mustache. Okay. And if you think about this- He looks like somebody that would wear a mustache. Because everything you've ever seen him in, he has a mustache. (laughs) That's why. He's a huge character actor. He plays bit parts like that in everything. Yeah. But I'm looking at him going, I'm getting a Tom Selleck without a mustache feel here. (laughs) And sure enough, it's a Sam Elliott without a mustache. But not quite as charismatic. (laughs) Well, or handsome or everything. Yeah. But- (laughs) But- but a solid actor does stuff. It's just, yeah. it's weird when you see somebody who has a look. Like when you see Wilford Brimley in a movie without a mustache, <laughs> you still know it's Wilford Brimley, but, but you're but like, it doesn't have a something, mustache. Something's missing here. Yeah, something's not, something's not right. <laughs> something without the oatmeal. <laughs> um, and then maybe my favorite inclusion of the whole movie is uh, Tran, played by Benedict Wong. A who's baby. Been- 
a Benedict Wong, baby Benedict Wong, who has literally been in every Marvel movie ever made, <laughs> more or less, <laughs> more or less. I mean, at least since Doctor Strange came along. Yeah, you know um, the funny thing is, is you get like no closure on his character. Yeah, he walks away at the beginning, and yeah. you see him in the flashbacks, but you never see what happened. You know what happened was he walked to Kybertage. And he learned how to become a sorcerer, and then he became the librarian. <laughs> so that's his that's his origin story right here in the, this there, movie. It's right here in the movie. 1991. <laughs> Wong walks to Kaimertage and becomes the next Sorcerer Supreme eventually. And yet he then is convinced to be brought back to save his buddy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And then uh, that's that's pretty much the main guys. Although there's a million characters in this movie, but oh, I'm not yeah. gonna I'm not gonna get into all of them because no. most of them are just like CAA stooges that just sort of pretty much. I mean, we could have mentioned Gladys, the his secretary, who does a pretty Mar- great job. By she the way. does actually, uh, Marianne Jean Baptiste. She adds a lot of punch to to those scenes. Well, considering that she's going toe to toe with Redford in almost every scene she has, yeah, she definitely holds her own against what the character type he's playing. Right. Well, and. And I imagine, too, because there's this running thing through the whole movie where Redford's talking about how many wives he has. Mm-hmm. And if he had stuck around long enough, I'm sure he would consider Gladys to be his fifth <laughs> Yeah, wife, wife number five. Wife right? number five. Work wife number four, but wife number five. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, should we get into the uh, majors here? Probably should. So, the pre-title sequence, we open on some date, time, and place graphics. Uh, We're at Su Chow Prison. It says, foreign aid workers respond to suspected cholera outbreak April 14th, 1991. And we see Brad Pitt, uh, a.k.a. Bishop, and Tran. They're dressed in white coats inside this ambulance. I never understood this. Did you notice that as the ambulance is driving... The words ambulance are backwards on the front of the van. You don't know why they do that? No. It's on every ambulance in the world. How do I not know this? Because you don't look in your rearview mirror enough, I'm guessing. Oh! That makes all the sense in the world. I just never knew Ladies that. and gentlemen, I just taught Ben something about the world. I learned something new today. It's always a good day when you learn something new. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but I digress. Now, was it backwards in Chinese? That's my question. No, it was English. <laughs> I can't write. I can't read Chinese. Well, there was a Chinese on it, though, so it makes me wonder. Was there some backwards Chinese there on it? could have been. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so then we see them enter the actual prison, and there's all this jeers and noise and clanging of coffee mugs and what have you. Like you do in a jail. Like you do in a jail. And then they're bringing in all these inoculations for the cholera outbreak or whatnot. And the warden has to be inoculated first to show that the injections are safe. And you get lots of these shifty eyes between the doctors that are getting set up mm-hmm. since this isn't an actual set well, of doctors. It seems doctor. like they're giving actual shots. Who knows? I mean, anybody know. can give a shot. That's true. So then we see, uh, we kind of see really quickly Bishop grab two capsules and like pocket those and he puts some kind of jelly on his hands i'm guessing to shock himself or my guess is looking at what the kind of jelly it was it's the kind of stuff they put on the defibrillation paddles okay since he's about to ground himself okay i see i'm guessing that he put it on there in a very implausible way to touch a a live open circuit um, but to try and give the scene some plausibility that he didn't kill himself right to make it look like he like right. he shocked himself to death. Right. So yeah, then he goes over to the medical equipment. The guard is hitting the gate as if to say don't. And then Bishop plugs it in. And he looks like he gets electrocuted. And yeah! And very convincingly, actually, I thought. I thought he did a good job of... If, except that there was no smoke coming out of him, but yeah. But yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's a good actor, but only Tom Cruise would have actually had smoke coming from his pores. <laughs> indeed, indeed. 
And then one of the other doctors hits him with a chair as if to break the Actually signal. a nice little scene that he didn't try and pull him off with his hands. Yeah, yeah, because it's more convincing that way. Right. It's like, oh, I, get, I see what they're trying to do. So Bishop, now unconscious, uh, is then rolled to another room where the, uh, the doctors inject him with something to basically, I don't know if they truly stop his heart or just like bring it down far enough that it's convincing. See, and that's the thing that I couldn't really get. Yeah. My assumption, like you are obviously assuming, was that Brad Pitt didn't get electrocuted yeah. because of the goo on his hands, which right. is also improbable. Right. However, and then they gave him the shot to at least slow his heart down enough so that the doctor wouldn't right. be able to do it. But he also took the capsule. So did he ingest the capsules and did that actually legitimately stop his heart? Or did That's that, exactly. Or did, or I did don't that know. Pro- or did that protect him from being shocked? Right. Because this, I don't know. It's a it's a little confusing in here. <laughs> because all I keep thinking of is the time frame they're working in. There's no guarantee that if his heart stopped, right, that they were going to be able to get him going. So I, the way I look at it, I, <laughs> I spent a lot of time thinking about this. If they'd given him injection to start him up, he would have jumped up like he did. Yeah, and yet he would have done it instantaneously. Right, because it, it probably would have been a slow burn. Right, because it probably would have been a, dr- a shot of adrenaline. Right, right. And I mean, they show that thing where he gets the shot where his skin starts to turn red yeah, again. Yeah, exactly. Like his blood's pumping or something. Yeah. So I mean, I don't know. I'd like <laughs> to read the script on how they describe what he got injected with. But right. My guess is, and is like Brad Pitt gets injected with something that wakes him up after <laughs> taking two pills that make him seem like he's dead. They probably didn't go into any kind of detail. Probably on not. It. Probably not. Not at all. Because they were like, this is never going to get reviewed by two idiots <laughs> 30 years later. That's right. We're going to pick it apart. Sitting in an undisclosed location, <laughs> cracking wise. <laughs> so the doctors say the bishop is dead and they cover him with a blanket. And then the warden orders them to go finish the injections. So in the meantime, the electrocution or whatever that caused the circuit breaker in the prison to cut out. So now they're trying to fix that. More shifty doctor eyes. And then we get a shot of Bishop. Like you said, the color returns to, to his arm. And then suddenly he springs back up, which, again, the the timing is suspect. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. So he wakes up and the doctor's, you know, he's got like a little bug in his ear. And the doctors are telling him how much time he has. He has six minutes before the power is fixed and the security cameras come back up. So Bishop starts looking for someone. And he runs into like a crazy person in some who won't shut up or whatever. And he... Takes a stick of gum. Well, and note, when he when he's going through the thing, he's got a map of the cells. Yes. On a piece of gum paper, gum wrapper paper. So he had the stick of gum in his pocket. Oh, okay. I, I see. Because he just pulls it out like raw dog gum, right? right? <laughs> right. And, you know, I, 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 he's a handsome man, but I don't want raw dog gum from out of Brad Pitt's pockets. I'm sorry. I don't want raw say. dog gum from anyone. No, 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 no. But this man... He seemed like he didn't care about raw dog gum. <laughs> he he's, he's a man that would take raw dog gum. <laughs> he take, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'll take it. Does it does it taste like Brad Pitt? Double pleasure, double fun. Double, double, double Brad gum. So he takes it and that kind of shuts up the crazy guy for a little bit. And he keeps going, pay attention, kids, because the gum means something. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, so Bishop finds the person and then he puts a small little explosive on the lock of the door and breaks that open. Meanwhile, we see that the, the, the guys the guys by the circuit breaker have almost got that back up and running. Then we see Bishop and the woman, they start moving, and the power goes back up, and the doctors continue to give shots. 
Meanwhile, the warden looks back at the security cam where Pitt's body was supposed to be, and we see him being rolled out of that room now to the ambulance. Meanwhile, the crazy guy is now waiting in line for the shot, and he's like mumbling to himself, blowing very big bubbles with this bubble gum, which not to to point fingers at silly little holes like this, but that was Wait a minute. That's what we do, That's what, okay. Don't be apologetic (laughs) for what gets us our lack of bread and butter on this podcast. (laughs) All right. Fine. I'm just going to point out that type of gum does not is not a good bubble blowing gum. Correct. I'm just saying that well, it, it, you need a sugary hunk of gum to blow yeah. bubbles. It really the size like, that that guy was blowing. It up. looked like a stick of Big Red. You know your basic Wrigley gum formula yeah. with flavoring. It's and this guy very loosey goosey. Doesn't do good bubbles. And this guy was blowing hubba bubba. He was definitely hubba bubba quality. <laughs> yeah. Get the bubble meter going. <laughs> That's right. Get, and. and the, <laughs> The whole thing goes on the premise that a CIA agent who's been in the field for over 15 years would be dumb enough enough to give somebody a piece of gum when he's trying to sneak around. Right. To a crazy person. I mean. In a prison where gum is nowhere to be found. In a Chinese prison. Correct. Where definitely there's no gum. No. I mean, honestly, I realize that you you find out the character doesn't have a taste for the killing portion of things, so he's not going to kill the guy, right? And he's on a time crunch, right? But what threat was that guy really? Yeah, that you could have just said, "Hey, what's up, buddy?" and kept on going, right? Because he was walking past other people left and right, right? He was just kind of doing a jig and just kind of he's he had his own thing yeah. going on. If if he hadn't been blowing bubbles, the prison warden would have been like, "Yeah, that's the crazy guy. Just that's just what he does." That's exactly it. And so you know me, I'm not a big fan of putting in shit like that in a movie just to move it yes. forward without a logical reason, right? But they had a story. I know. Side payoff to it's, it. It's story armor. Yeah. Right? You know, <laughs> it keeps it going. Yeah. It's fantasy, blah, 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 whatever. I mean, right. I've, I've heard all the excuses on everything I've ever been on. But <laughs> it still bothers me that, yeah. you know, we couldn't, you couldn't come up with a more elegant solution to make more Jeopardy rather than a piece of gum that right. makes no sense in the real world. <laughs> so we see the gurney loaded into the ambulance. And as it's being lifted in, we see under brad pitt's body we see a second set of feet hidden under dun, the body dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. so then we see the warden and he sees the ambulance at the gate through the security cameras but then sees the guy with the gum and he's like wait a second how does this guy have gum so then he screams to halt their exit and at that point just as the gate is like opening guns are drawn uh somehow i don't understand how Tran just sort of walks away. Like, I never quite understood. Well, uh, yeah, the guard asks for papers, then he asks him to step out of the thing. And so, and that's what I'm saying. In the process of all of this happening, Tran obviously just walks off. He sort of disappears into the... But, without, without, because there was so much other chaos that he was not the focal point or something. Yeah, but like I said, I expected there to be payback for him disappearing. Yeah, like he shows up to help Brad Pitt escape later or whatever, yeah. and he literally just disappears. As of 1991, you never see him again. You only see him again in 75. Yeah, and so going back to sloppy writing. Yeah. How come we didn't have Tran dropping dime on the whole operation? And that's what blew it rather than a stupid piece of gum that an experienced CIA (laughs) officer would not give to somebody because it could ruin the op. That's right. Damn it, people. This is my job. I should be doing this like, nope, makes no sense. Nope, makes no sense. Nope. You could do this, 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 and this, and it all makes sense. Get to work, boys or girls. 
<laughs> we digress. So the guns are drawn. We on... should call this the Central Intelligence Digression Podcast. <laughs> So guns are drawn on the uh, ambulance, and the doctors and Bishop—they're all hauled off. Well, Bishop in particular is hauled off to a uh, to a cell, and then the first of many egregious speed ramped aerial shots. Barf. Where it's just like, <laughs> and, then, and then we're seeing uh, aerial footage in Hong Kong with a lower third, appropriately sized. However, I will yeah, say yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And then we get the uh, uh, more sound effects in the title, <laughs> Spy Game. And very, it's a very post-Matrix uh, font that they're using there. Yeah, yeah it's only <laughs> two years later. Yeah. So, And I kind of wondered, too, if that aerial footage in the background, you see the brand names. You see Panasonic, Ford, and Nikon super prominent. Like, I wonder if there was any sort of paycheck... Or Probably was, not. That's or just, just how Hong those, Kong looks. Yeah, right? they just needed to... There's gigantic signs of everything. <laughs> right. This right. is the first time I'm going to point out that this feels a lot like No Way Out. A lot of this movie felt a oh, lot yeah. like No Way Out. Particularly the final third. Right? Yeah. But I mean, even the title, because you remember the No Way Out was just yeah. the one big helicopter <laughs> yeah. shot. Yeah. Right? Thank God it wasn't sped up, but they weren't doing that when that movie came out. <laughs> right. But it just... They didn't have Final Cut Pro just yet. No, no, so no. So they couldn't no, do no. the speed rampy stuff so No, quick. no. No, no. <laughs> so then we're into the main uh, sequence here, the act one. And we see a, a guy in Hong Kong up at the top of a building making a call. And then we cut to Robert Redford, a.k.a. Nathan Muir, lying in bed... <laughs> Wife beater, like old guys do. Like old guys do. <laughs> and he's he's in Washington, D.C. We get a lower third. And then, uh, you know, the guy in the building is Harry Duncan, who's the Hong Kong U.S. Embassy guy. He tells Muir that he's got 25 minutes to see the wire info before he actually sends out the report. He's got 25 minutes to see the wire, and then he hangs up. And then the next shot we see is Muir in his car, in his very nice Porsche. 912. 912, which I... There's a little note in here from IMDb that says that it's basically a 911 with Boxer 4 engine produced mm-hmm. for a short while in the late 60s. This is the impetus for the the now current Boxster and Cayman. Ah. They use a similar, similarly styled engine inside it. Also, Subaru use, uh, uses the same type of four-cylinder really? engine. In it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's a gorgeous car. Oh, <laughs> I mean, it, it is. All, I, every late 60s, 911, 912, they're all gorgeous. Yeah. In fact, every 911 since inception yeah. has been <laughs> pretty much the most iconic car ever. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah I could have just watched him drive that car around for two hours. Probably <laughs> would have enjoyed it more. <laughs> so, now he's driving his car and Mir calls back Harry on his car phone and we hear from Harry that quote Boy Scout is in trouble but then Harry's mad because Mira is talking to him on his car phone he's like I don't know you <laughs> he doesn't really say I don't know right. but, he, but he's like call me back on a secure call line call me back on a secure line you did realize that that guy was from Gladiator he was in Gladiator right oh really Harry. yeah he's the basically the guy who runs the Coliseum I guess right so because he's the one that's always talking to Joaquin Phoenix and Joaquin you know he's like I thought that the Carthaginians lost at the battle or whatever. Blah, blah, blah. Oh. Yes, my lord. Uh, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I'm like, so they share actors too. Okay, well, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> the brothers share actors yeah, too? Yeah, they, they're probably like, it'd be a good, you know, I work with this guy on Spy Game that might work for you. <laughs> 
He's a good character he's actor. Good. He could probably Although, get it done for you. He does mad good. He does yeah, annoyed he really do, well. He does really, and yeah, he, <laughs> he might look the part. So yeah, you should use this guy. And then we get this, we get a great line right before they hang up from Muir saying, if I'm walking into a shit storm, I want to know which way the wind is blowing. Right. <laughs> so then we get more speed ramps. <laughs> and then we're to the CIA headquarters. And he rolls up into the uh, gate and like does the little, you know, yeah. he does CIA little, security mm-hmm. officer, you know, you're at the CAA because he says it on his hat, on his jacket, on, on the everything. gate, everywhere you go, every single rock as he drives by says Central Intelligence Rock. And, <laughs> yeah. and this, you know, this this brought up something to me that I almost always think about whenever they show the CIA because they show a stock photo of Langley. Sure. Right. And you look at the building at Langley, and they, no one has ever made one where the building matches what it looks like because <laughs> you can't film at Langley. Right. Right. But I'm like, every time we see somebody walk over the seal, I'm like, did they put it in tile? Is it just a sticker, a right. big decal? Right. How did they make that work? <laughs> because, or are there just a bunch of buildings that literally have the CAA logo from a movie that was filmed in them that they never took off? Well, I mean, you think about how many movies they've made. You got to think they go, well, somebody else is going to use this. So let's hold on to this. Right. I mean, we just talked about the fact that somebody held on to uh, Cushing's head, yeah, head mold for head mold in Top Secret that they eventually use for Rogue One. So right. they hold on to everything. It just, it, it just, it's so funny to me. Their studios have standing sets for the White House, right, uh-huh. and and other things of that nature. Sure. Why doesn't somebody have a standing CIA set somewhere? <laughs> Is it just cheaper to find an office building that looks CIA? And then just move this gigantic logo everywhere they go. You know, I can see somebody calling down, uh, yeah, this is the prop room. We can't find that CAA decal you was looking for. Uh, we got one that says uh, close. Looks like Central Intelligence Cinema. Maybe we could use that. I mean, if you know, if you were cutting it properly with the correct lighting, the DOP could probably make it look right. I don't know. I just every time I see it, I'm like, is it real? Is it Memorex? Now it's probably all digital. Oh yeah, now you know. But that does give me hope that somewhere in a prop room in Hollywood, there's a big ten foot Central or CIA logo sitting in a storeroom waiting to be used somewhere. <laughs> One would hope. So then we see Nathan. Uh, enter into an office and he hits up his buddy Jimmy to get the cable off the mainframe instead of having to find out in the operations center. Very reminiscent, yes. like you said before, of No Way t- Out. No Way Out. Yeah. Tom, Tom's buddy Sam, giving him all the info, you know, finding the one, the computer guy, having your right. one computer guy friend. <laughs> so he reads the printout as he's walking up there and we see just a glimpse of it that says that Tom's in a Chinese prison and that it was an unauthorized operation. So... We, then we see Mirror and he walks into his office and we get introduced to Gladys who hands him a coffee immediately and Harker is already there in his office and Harker's making small talk with Mirror before he delivers yet another great line. He's like, Chuck, are we going to dance all night with your hand on my ass or are you going to make a move? He's got so many great lines in this. So many good oh, yeah. ones. Oh yeah. So essentially Harker wants Bishop's file and Mirror just kind of plays it real cool like, well, you better sit down because it's going to take me a while to find 
explain this. Well, and, and if you look at his office, it's a disaster area. Right, because he's about ready to retire. Yeah. And so everything's packed up. And as soon as he's gone, Mira's able to get it right out of the safe because it's, it's the one thing that he's locked up that you know, isn't part of all the other trash that's in his room that he doesn't give a shit about. Right. In addition to that file, we see a real estate brochure for a property in the Bahamas that's for, and remember this, kids, $282,000. Now, can I just say, man, $282,000 for a piece of land in the Bahamas? Damn. I don't know. That seems expensive to me, to be perfectly honest with you. In the Bahamas? Well, maybe for 1991 it was expensive. Yeah. It sure ain't expensive now. No, it definitely is not. But I'm just like, is he buying half of the, the <laughs> east coast of the beach? Right. I mean, it's the Bahamas, man. Right. I just find it interesting, too, though, that so allegedly his entire savings is, is the exact amount that the property is. It's like, what are you going to live on once you buy that property? Well, and that's the thing. Uh, Unless that's just his investments that he liquidates and he has like a whole nother... I'm guessing it's, yeah, it's. I'm guessing it's not his entire retirement. Right. But the oddly specific number makes me wonder if he knew that ahead of time, that that's what it was exactly going to be worth. Right. Because <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'm pretty sure if I took my retirement out, it wouldn't end up in a zero, zero. <laughs> right. right. There'd be some sense. It'd be and... like 72 cents. Yeah. <laughs> Plus he had to take into account the penalty, so he's quite the mathematician. <laughs> Exactly. With the penalties, at this point, it'll be exactly <laughs> $282,000. So Gladys brings some kind of 30 years of service retirement certificate to him that was signed by the director of the CIA with his actual signature. Pay attention, kids. And then we see Muir, and he takes basically everything out of Bishop's file except one little piece of paper, which I don't even know. Do you recall what what, is, what it even talks about? I don't think I don't think we ever find out. It's not really, it doesn't really matter because he's just trying to gut it so that the uh, higher-ups don't know. What they don't know doing. exactly what he's done. Right, exactly. So he can just say, well, it's all up here and you just got to listen to me and take well, my word for it. And the thing you get as you go through the storyline is that Redford is one of those guys who just does what he wants to do yeah. and asks for forgiveness later. <laughs> yeah. And so by taking on all this information, he's actually removing a lot of things he doesn't want them to know that he did. Yeah. As well oh, as yeah. Tom. Yeah. Because he instigated almost all of it. Well, and you find out later, too, that you know his reputation is that he's a guy who gets stuff done. Right. And so they give him that leeway... To, right, but they just a, kind of do things a little willy-nilly at, at times. Well, but he gets called out on it several times during the right. the conference that he's in and manages to deflect it in a different direction or whatever else. Sure. So we then see he stuffs the rest of the file items in a burn bag and tells Gladys to hold on. He's, he's like, I've always wanted to use one of these burn bags. <laughs> and he has a whole drawer full of them. Yeah. And I'm like, why are they colored like that? Is that some sort of significance? I, hey, it I, looks like a shopping bag with stripes on. I it. know. I hey, you know what? I actually searched for them on Google, and they look just like the ones in the movie. That's so weird. <laughs> so uh, he tells Gladys to hold on to it until told otherwise. And Gladys asks him something about it. He's like, or she says, "You didn't see what I put in there." Are you feeling a little paranoid on our last day. When did Noah build the ark, Gladys? Before the rain. Before the rain. 
So then we see Muir enter the op center with his one paper file on Bishop, <laughs> but they won't actually let him in. He just ha- he has to like give it to the guy at first for whatever. And also, reason. I want to point out sliding doors at the CIA. What is it? A supermarket? <laughs> right. People can't open a door. <laughs> I know. They even added like a little almost Star Trekian <laughs> sound effect to it. <laughs> So he hangs out in the op center for a second to watch the news. Very interesting, that little speaker that he he can hold to his ear to listen to the audio that's on the TV. Right. It's like, was when did Bluetooth become a thing? Did they have Bluetooth I'm in 91? Sure yeah, I'm sure it was a radio broadcast yeah. kind of thing. But yeah. it's just funny that, you know, I, it makes sense. Yeah. Did they have closed captioning on TVs back then? I'm sure they did. I don't I mean, know. I mean, I think you could get closed captioning on things that were closed captioned, like tapes. Mm. Or there was broadcasting closed caption. Right. But I wonder well, maybe if not technically in 91, yeah. I don't think they had live feed uh, closed captioning at right. that point. Well, anyway, we hear... <laughs> We hear that the U.S. and China are close to a major trade agreement and that the president is due to visit China to sort of seal the deal. And then we briefly hear about the end of the Cold War. I think it's like two years post-Cold War. I think that's what they say on the news. Uh, Chuck comes out of the the super secret room to talk to Mira saying, is this it? And Mira says most of the details are in his head and that he's old school. And with that, that sort of gets him into the super secret glass encased Sliding door task force (laughs) conference room of doom. That's right. So inside is Aiken, who Mir has clearly worked with at some point. And then he asks if the task force has a name and just crickets. And just nobody wants to tell him shit. Well, and he gets the whole thing from Troy about, you know, we want to hear what you have to say, but due to the nature of what's going on and inferring that since this is your last day, we can't tell you everything. Right. So behind the tinted window, we see Troy with Cy Wilson, the CIA director. And Cy tells Troy, uh, this is a tough one, Troy. I'm going to see you later. Essentially just saying, you're not going to get anything out of Mir. Right. right. <laughs> like, but good and, luck. <laughs> and also I'm introducing myself because without saying who I am, because you'll see me later. <laughs> right. Exactly. Troy then enters trying to be all buddy-buddy with Mir, saying they just need him to fill in the gaps with information. And then Chuck says, we just need you to be a team player. And then Nathan goes, every time my baseball coach told me that I got benched. <laughs> it comes out with a lot of those little homespunnies. Yeah, a lot uh, of at homes. the beginning of it. Very much so, because we get one later about uh how his uncle had to put down a horse. Right. So Troy then explains that Bishop disappeared a week ago in Hong Kong and has now turned up in Shanghai, arrested for espionage. And essentially the task force is set up to build the case, i.e., throw Bishop under the bus. We find out that the president has 24 hours to claim or not claim him, and that's when we get the first of many egregious timestamps going forward. Because now that we know that there's 24 hours before they execute Tom, they have to tell you what time it is all the fucking time in this movie. And it just feels egregious. And it's it's, it's a hard stop to the movie. Yeah, it goes from color to black and white. With a dumb freeze frame oh, and yeah. a big letters of 8.02 a.m. 3.22 p.m. <laughs> I'm just like... Come on, like So what you're saying is there's a time constraint here. <laughs> okay, good. Why don't we just have a clock running at the bottom of it? Oh wait, twenty-four hadn't happened yet. <laughs> well, and the other thing is too is you know, we've covered plenty of movies that have a ticking time bomb in it. Right. 
but they don't come paired with a giant spectacle of graphics and sound. No. That like stop you in your tracks for like a solid three seconds before you get back into the scene. Yeah, typically what you'll see is like when you introduce in the next scene, you'll get a little, uh, little, title, little thing beep, that says <laughs> two minutes left to go or two hours left to go. You yeah. Know? It's letting you know at this point, this much time has moved along. So right. you're still aware there's some jeopardy. Yeah. And you know what's funny is I haven't seen this used in anything else. So apparently <laughs> the movie industry also thought it was dumb. Good idea, Christian. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> Probably Tony. I'm not going to blame him for that. That's true. I'm blaming that's, Tony that's for that. That's true. I should know better. As an editor, I should know better that a lot of times the worst ideas that you think the editor did was the director telling him to do that. Exactly. So, <laughs> Mir suggests leaking to the press to buy them time, but Troy doesn't want external interference to limit their options. Well, right there, that's a pretty good indicator of what's happening. Yeah. Right? Well, they've already made up their mind as to what they want to do. That, well, that I, think that, sort of, I think that, yeah, they. I think they've decided that that's the path they want to go and they're finding a justification for it right but at the same token he's right if they release that then there's only one thing to do which is save them because otherwise except that they find another way out right when there was no way out no way, no way out <laughs> we then find out that bishop had been working under harry duncan in hong kong before he quote took matters into his own hands they won't tell Mir where he's being held although he already knows, essentially. Mears asks if they're worried there'll be a, a congressional hearing regarding the matter. And again, there's like crickets because they don't want to tell him shit. Right. And I think Parker is on one right from the get-go to try and take Mir out of the situation as well. Like, yes. Like they clearly have never liked each other ever. <laughs> well, is, you know. That is very clear from yeah, right from the very beginning of For this movie. Whatever the reason is. But yeah. every spy movie, you have to have the asshole officer. Yeah. That clashes with the main character officer. Right. And this is clear, you know, it's clearly hard. The by the book political guy who hates the fact that the other guy gets away with so much shit yeah. when he's a by the book kind of guy. Right. And then Mir asks if they're going to ask him to testify, and they're all, all of them are suddenly. Oh, hell no. They're like, no. <laughs> And I will say too, in this in this area, I like the fact that they did. This is the area of the soundtrack that actually is really is done really well because it's really subtle. It's just like a little low hum to sort of help build some of the tension, so that it's not just like played for laughs or whatever. When they say no, it's like there's this good long pregnant pause, but they bring in that drone to sort of help mm -hmm. sort of help build the the tension there. Troy then brings up that they were in Vietnam together and asks about how they met, and immediately. We hear, before we even cut to the flashback, we hear the opening guitars of Rocky Mountain Way <laughs> by Joe fucking Walsh. Good morning, <laughs> Vietnam. <laughs> indeed, indeed. As we hear Muir say that it's spring of 1975 and all the footage is graded with, they, in the trivia, they called it like a, what was it, like a green sepia? Yeah. I felt like it looked more yellow, like a yellow wash over everything, but whatever. I mean, you're clearly in a different place. Yes. You're clearly back then. It's like if so, you were in Breaking Bad and everything turned yellow, you knew you were in Mexico. Right. <laughs> so now it's like a greenish yellow, you know you're in Vietnam. That's right. Sure. Like we said before, almost convincing that they're both 25 years younger, in particular. Well, Brad Robert Pitt Redford. sells it pretty good. Well, Brad Pitt's does it pretty well, but Bob's struggling a bit. Bob's having a little bit of trouble there. So Mir was headed to meet a sniper to employ in Da Nang, but then the sniper ended up getting killed. 
And so the guy that he's walking with on the camp is like, well, I got this other guy. He's a, uh, uh, what did you say he was? I forget what Bishop's uh, position oh, he's a staff was. Ser- he's a staff sergeant, but he was a yeah. sniper. Right. Well, I got this other guy. He's like, well, how many kills has he got? Well, like three or something. It wasn't very many at the no, time. No. And he's like, well, he, he lives separate from the other guys. Him and the other sniper, they're over there. And they, they and I'm not even going to use the term that they say, but they cook the food of the locals there. And so right. it smells weird. But what's great about it is that Muir immediately is like, well, it probably smells great to the enemy, so that guy's using his head. Right. And so he's like, I want to meet him. Right. You know, so just kind of a cool little moment, how he kind of turns that little moment around. So then Bishop comes over, and he's like, well, where'd you learn to shoot? And he's like, Boy Scouts. He's like, no, really? Where? And he's like, really? Boy Scouts? Right. <laughs> Hence the nickname Boy Scout. And all the references that come later in the yes, movie. Right. So we then get some more VO. Mirror describes Bishop as being idealistic, but not liking the view once he got there, which is pretty <laughs> apropos. Right. Nathan then goes over who he, who he wants Bishop to kill. And Bishop doesn't really need or want a name. We just know that he's called like a red shirt or the the red shirt, I think is his nickname or something like Which that. Which of course means he has to die because right. he's wearing a red shirt. <laughs> I mean. That's right. We only find out that Bishop is willing to do it and he's going to kill red shirt because as we all know, red guys in red shirts always I die. I mean, he was definitely a Trek fan. <laughs> That's right. From an early age. <laughs> I mean, he directed two <laughs> Trek movies. So, you know. <laughs> so there you go. So then we get this intercutting um, between the continuing debrief and Bishop and Tran flying into the territory. And we learn that it, it's this high-powered meeting between Red Shirt and the Viet Cong. <laughs> Muir is telling Bishop that there may be an entourage with him, and it's basic. <laughs> And as they're looking at it's it- It's a convoy. Yeah, it's like a whole convoy of, of soldiers coming in. And they get the enemy in sight. And then suddenly a helicopter comes up, which they weren't anticipating at all. But it kind of shows it kind of shows Bishop's like grit and willingness to just see this thing out. Because he's like, no, I'm not moving. And because Tran's like, let's get out of here. This thing is blown. We weren't anticipating any of this. He's like, hold on, hold on. I can get this. And so he gets the shot. And there's some like talk over the radio, but I don't know- well, Whether they're calling. They, to, they're I, calling to get out, but then there's radio interference yeah, for no apparent reason. For no apparent reason, so you know. it's just sort of left up to Bishop's decision what to do. So he insists on taking the shot. He gets the shot. He kills the guy. They has to do it twice, though. Yeah, because he's basically shooting in between a moving helicopter. Right. I mean, I'm not faulting that he had to take two shots. <laughs> right. Because he clipped him right in between the helicopter landing gear thing, and and, right. and then he had to hit him on a second with a headshot. Right. <laughs> but in the process, then they start getting shot at themselves. Right. And as they're trying to flee, Tran gets hit. But then Bishop uh, comes back and gets him and carries him down into some brush. They like kind of hide in the brush. And the helicopter comes back around. And then, of course, Bishop is able to hit the helicopter and a helicopter explodes. And then we cut to the next day and we see uh, the rescue helicopter out to try and find them, see if they survived or whatnot. Because apparently the, the radio must have gone out completely. I can only guess. Well, I'm assuming that when they booked, they ditched the radio because they yeah. didn't even have the sniper rifle yeah, by the time nothing. they were done. Yeah. So they're looking around and Muir already is like, sorry, we lost one of your guys. But then he was ready to write them off. Yeah. And then as just as they're about ready to leave, he sees them in the river and they turn back and they get him. And then he says, I love at the end, he goes, hell of an ad for the Boy Scouts. <laughs> <laughs> So then uh, we're back in the uh, task force 
room of sliding glass doom. Uh, and uh, Miras asked whether he had presidential finding for authorizing the kill. They are just looking at every avenue to like yeah. thro- throw both of them under the bus. Right. Well, so, I mean, Bishop at the get-go, but Muir, if they could. Yeah, they're looking for anything. They're going all the way back to Vietnam to try and sink him. Which makes me wonder, when they qu- asked that question, is that when Mears went, oh, well, maybe I could actually get thrown under the bus here too. Yeah. Because here's the thing, his whole attitude, I, th- I think the point was that he did have a soft spot for him, so he did something he said he would clearly never do later in the movie. Yeah. But in my mind, I like that there was a hint of self-protection. Oh, self-preservation. Doing, self-preservation and doing the right thing. Yes. And that if it hadn't been that, he might have still left him to burn. I do like Mir's retort to that guy. He's like, I don't believe we've met. <laughs> and it was a guy, I forget who the guy is. He's from the National Security Administration, or yeah. agency rather. Yeah. And then Parker's next to him trying to double down. And he's like, well, did you? <laughs> right. Did you? Well. Yeah. And Mir just goes on to say, well, we were in a country we weren't officially in, assassinating a general from a country we weren't at war with. So it's like. <laughs> what are you going to do, man? Right. As Mira's saying all this, he's paging Gladys to call him. It's very clever that he just kind of like, he can tell now that he, that they're trying to sink his ship as well. So he's right. like, so Chuck still won't let it go until Mira's like, come on, guys. The president admits he's ours, denies he's a spy. And then they put out the fires and negotiations. And just after he says that, Gladys then calls the task force room, saying that he has Mir's wife on the line, (laughs) one of his four wives. But he's really just telling him that there's three guys in his office rummaging through all his shit. And she's asking whether she should now burn the file. Right. And he's like talking, he's like, no, no, uh, no, it's it's fine. Hold off on that. Um, Okay, yeah. Anyway. Right. Yeah. Yeah, he's like, he's like kind of acting like he's on the phone. Yeah, yeah, okay. And Gladys is like, what the fuck right. is he saying? And all the while that he's on the phone, you can hear the guys in the room with Mirror still like going, looking for ways to like oh, sink yeah. him. And he's listening while he's talking to her. Yeah. He's so clever through this whole thing. He's like, he gets off the phone. And he's like, oh, that's right. I think I know where it is. The closet. And so he goes to go down. Well, well, Chuck, well, Chuck says to him, he's like, well, we'll just send somebody to get it. He's like, no, no, I'm going to get it. Yeah. yeah. It's not like you guys have better things to do than to rubbish through my office. <laughs> right. And that shuts him them all up. So he walks out the sliding glass doors and there he goes. <laughs> They're like, fuck, we're burned. <laughs> so we cut to Mir entering his office, which is a disaster now, of course. And he, he picks up the flask that's on the floor. And then we get that little quick, really quick flashback of Bishop giving him the flask. And then Gladys kind of snaps him out of the memory. And, he, and he's like, you were right, it rained. Well, and his office is now even more trash than when he walked out of it. Right. He tells Gladys to burn the stuff in the bag. And he asks Gladys for the number to his journalist friend. And he tells her that the CIA are looking for a reason to let the Chinese kill Tom Bishop. So as he closes the door, we get this, the overdramatic timestamp, 12.40 p.m. Dun, 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 dun. I mean, it might have... It, it should have been, it should have been like that the from Law and Order. order. <laughs> dun, dun. <laughs> and this is a thing, I, I listened to a little bit of the commentary from Tony Scott about this movie. And he talks about how, because we, in the, in, in the chronology of this movie, we now cut to Tom being tortured, tortured and interrogated by the Chinese prison guys. And they do this intercutting a lot yeah. throughout this whole thing where they keep going back to showing Bishop being tortured. And Tony Scott was 
talking about how he wanted to make sure that he was in your mind the entire time you're watching that all the while bishop is being tortured and that you don't forget about him or or whatever that being said it feels a little heavy-handed to me but this one this one makes sense because this is like fresh we're still you know in, in the first third of the movie right so we're we're you know we're still sort of finding out what's happening to him well and i'm thinking that when they filmed it they filmed one interrogation scene and that was they, maybe supposed to be its own standalone scene. And then they just chopped it up. And then he's like, you know what? I don't feel like there's enough drama. You're not feeling the motivation here enough. And he, yeah, he just literally cut it into bits to throw it through. Because, I mean, it takes place all within a... How, how much is a 24-hour period that it takes place in? Why, yes, it's 24 um, hours. Because I, it, it would have been nice <laughs> if they'd marked it in some way so in that you knew ways. that the, maybe there were stakes involved. Yeah. Maybe they had like really gaudy graphics with a with a really loud, overly loud sound effect. It's something like that. Something like something that. Something so that you knew what, <laughs> what the stakes were. And yet uh, they, they didn't do that. And so now we have to have Tom getting beat up. So you know that there's still stakes happening That's within this 24-hour right, period. Right, right. They were just right. beating the crap out of him for 24 hours. That's right. He looks worse than he did in Fight Club. He really kind of does. <laughs> but uh, ironically, he looks his age after he gets the shit beat out of him. So maybe <laughs> maybe that was a good idea. <laughs> there you go. So they do this very clever. Now, I will, I will give uh, Mr. Wagner some credit for this cut that they do where we see uh, Bishop getting hit. And just as he gets hit, it immediately cuts to Muir barging into another office. He did do some things right. That's all I'm trying to say. Tony Scott was sleeping at that point. (laughs) Yeah, right? (laughs) So this is Andrew Unger's office, I believe, that he goes into. And Andrew Unger, I see him as kind of like the... uh, Who's the guy in Fletch? Is it Underwood? That they that he yes. builds that he builds all the all the stuff to yes the underwoods the underwoods I feel like Andrew Unger is the underwoods of this movie <laughs> because whenever whenever Muir needs something or he wants to do it off the radar he just he uses Unger's shit to do it right so so he kicks Unger out of his own office because he's like well it's classified so can you just get out <laughs> well he has to use a secure line but he knows they're monitoring his line at this point right so he goes to use Unger's line so that. It'll give him some more time. So meanwhile, we cut back to the task force room and Chuck asks Troy if he trusts Muir. And Troy said he that he was a guy that got the job done. So it is kind of nice that Troy is like trying to play it fair for Muir. He's not trying to sink right. Muir, you know, whereas Chuck is just out for blood. Yes. He then reveals that based on Mira's home phone records that he knew about the situation with Bishop but played dumb when they told him about it when he first got there. But it's like, well, what what do you of course he is cuz he's a spy. Yeah. He's a well-tenured spy. Of course he's going to do this. Yeah, he's made of- connections. What do you expect? People are going to tell him things. Yeah. That's that's what he's supposed to do. It's his job. Right. So, Harker then calls down to somewhere uh, to get confirmation on all the calls that are coming in or out of Nathan's office. Which is now a moot point because Nathan's already ahead of him. On. Right, exactly. Which is funny, too, because we see Harker do this little, almost like a jig. He's well, they're like, eating lunch, right? He's like, gee, I'm hungry. And he yeah. like thinks he's all cool. Because he, he, <laughs> it almost felt like um, Zerny's character in uh, in uh, Mission oh, Impossible. Yes, Henry Zerny. Henry Zerny, yeah. yeah. Kittredge. Just, yeah, Kittredge. <laughs> he just kind of felt like a Kittredge kind of thing. You know? oh, yeah, very much so. So, like, he thinks he's... He's finally got Ethan in a bind. Right. <laughs> like, I'm feeling hungry. <laughs> but, of course, like we said, uh, 
you know, Nathan's in uh, Andrew Unger's office calling his buddy in Hong Kong at the Hong Kong Herald, Digger Gibson, asking him to get CNN to put out this headline that says, CIA operative caught in the act of espionage. In the meantime, he swipes Unger's badge and key card so he can get anywhere in the building. He's just, like I said, he's the Underwood. He's the Underwood of this movie. Sorry, Mr. Unger. (laughs) So this might be, this next bit, might be my favorite part of the whole movie, honestly, because I love a good training sequence. There's sure. No, there's nothing I love more in a movie than a training the sequence. training montage. So Muir gets back up to the task force room and they ask him about Bishop's recruitment. So now we're back in flashback mode and Muir is talking about how he does his research on Bishop just before he's pulled out of Vietnam. And then he goes to, this is, I really like that, although it's mean, it's really cool that like he kind of puts Bishop through it before he even knows that he's being put through it. Right. So they pull him out of Vietnam and Muir sort of manages to have Bishop shipped to West Germany in 1976 to do menial office duties where nobody in the office speaks English. So he feels completely alienated and isolated. And I have to point out here, <laughs> Brad Pitt's hair. <laughs> Now, I realize that it's Brad Pitt's hair, but I don't think there's a Marine alive whose hair would have been that long. Coming right out of Vietnam. Well, not even that, period. If they're in uniform, they aren't wearing shaggy DA hair like that. Right. They've got a crop. They've got a clothes. They're they're high and tight, baby. Yep. And I'm just, I'm looking at it going, (laughs) did they have to, they didn't have to make him a Marine. (laughs) Yeah. Right? He could have been an, you could have made him army. Yep. And maybe they still should have that hair. I don't know. But it really, seeing him in a Marine uniform with that haircut, I'm just like, that is so wrong. Yeah. Well, at the very least, they should have had him with like a really tight haircut while in Vietnam. You know, maybe let it come out just a little bit. I know that they were trying to paint it as, well, it's the 70s. And well, yeah. But hey, but, you know, but it's uh, yeah. like, no, you're still in an office. You're still. A Marine is a Marine, whether it was, you until know. Until you're done being a Marine. 1876 or 1976. Exactly. So on top of it, like no one gives Bishop an idea about when he can even go home. And right before he kind of hits this breaking point, Muir creates this chance encounter so that he can invite Bishop to this big Christmas party and then ask him to join the CIA working for him. And of course, the the very next day he joins, you know, it's like, well, you can either work in the shitty office. Well, he did tell him he could say no. Oh, that's and he true. Would, he would him send him to San Diego or to his home t- Yeah, back to his hometown right. for the rest of the duty. So he gave him a soft out if he didn't want to do it. This is true. But the Christmas party was pretty sexy and, you know, and you're working for the coolest dude in the world. You're working basic. for Robert Redford. You're, Come on. Yeah, exactly. So the next day he joins... And then they start the training montage. We're going to get a spy montage. It's a motherfucking montage. <laughs> yep. All right. Maybe not a full-on montage, but mostly a montage. I mean, it was like an extended montage. Yes. A montage with some dialogue. A, right. a more Well, and uh, Robert Redford actually described this movie as a thinking man's action movie. Absolutely. I mean, here you go. Like I was mentioning before, Germany looks so good in this flashback, like, Everything is gray and dismal. But then, of course, they have to bring in that stupid speed rampy shit. With the fast forward tape sound and everything else. And all their speed ramping is them walking. It's not even an aerial shot, for fuck's sake. (laughs) It's them walking. Anyway. As I say, this is too boring, but I want it in the scene. 
Can we just speed it up? Well, and there you could tell they were trying to kick off the music. Yeah. This more rocking music as they start yeah. this montage. So, but we get this clever line from Muir that says, all you need to be a to be a spy is a stick of gum, a pocket knife, and a smile. And so that's where we get the whole gum. That's where this gum thing mm-hmm. comes from. He doesn't mention that you need it raw dog, but well, it clearly doesn't <laughs> mention that if you're trying to do a prison escape, <laughs> that maybe you shouldn't give that gum to a prisoner who could blow the whole op. That's right. So we then see Bishop learning about Russian radios and memorizing surroundings. And God damn it, if Robert Redford doesn't look as cool as cool as cool can be in that turtleneck. Turtlenecks ne- were invented. For, for Robert Redford. He, they really were. And it was the most, it was the one point that sold the 70s the most to me. Yeah, for sure. Because he looks so badass when they're in right? that restaurant. He's got his blazer on. Oh he's got my his God. turtleneck. He's got his, just the he's coolest, got his 76 hair and his sideburns. Just the coolest motherfucker in the room. I know. Ugh. Anyway, so, <laughs> so we see uh, Bishop practicing monitoring and listening to tapes or of something. We get more wisdom from Muir saying to always carry cigarettes and a lighter because it's a great icebreaker. We see him learning to beat a lie detector test. We see that we're back in the restaurant and he's seeing stuff in reflections. He's like, how did you see that guy back there, the suit in the kitchen? And it's like, well, like points to the little dome on the, on the yeah, food the or whatever. <laughs> and then we get this great test where they're out at this coffee shop outside he says, you see that balcony on that apartment? You didn't know anybody in there? He's like, no. He's like, I want you to be standing on that balcony in five minutes. What's cool, too, is in the trivia, it says that it's uh, actually from a book. This whole thing is from a book by a former Mossad agent, Victor Ostrovsky, who describes this test as part of the training of a Mossad agent. So kind of cool that they managed to... Because sl- I thought it was really cool before I even knew that story. Right. Like, that's just a cool thing to... It's about getting people to do what you want them to do. That's, exactly. that's what the whole training thing is about. Yeah. Then Mir wants uh, Bishop to solicit information from someone. They're out in this like park where people are feeding birds or whatever, and there's this cute girl that's nearby, and Bishop's like, I can do this. So he <laughs> strolls over. and But then afterwards, Mir calls him out on using all these lies to get the information. He's like, you used four different lies that now might have to be true if this person's going to become an asset or right. or another agent. You have to now back up this information, this false information you gave them and, you know, gives him pause to think about all that sort of thing. It's kind of cool, too. This is when they sort of intercut how they, they're starting to become friends. They're at a bar together. Amir's complaining about the scotch that he's drinking. He's, right. He's like, he says something in German to the bartender, like, what the hell is this shit? You know, and then the bartender brings down the good scotch. And Bishop's like, I thought spies drink martinis. Scotch, never less than 12 years old. Is that right? Agency rules? My rules. Then Bishop's asking him for more words of wisdom. And he and he's like, put away some money so you can die someplace warm. And don't touch it, not for anyone ever. Foreshadowing. Wonder, foreshadowing. I wonder if that'll ever come back. <laughs> foreshadow alert. <laughs> foreshadow alert. And then he continues with this same foreshadow alert by saying, don't ever risk your life or career for an asset. If it's them or you, send flowers. They see what would have been funny. Granted, it was a good ending. Yeah. But the best ending for this movie would have been Muir in the Bahamas and then flowers show up at his door. (laughs) That would be great. (laughs) Or better yet, Bishop shows up with flowers in hand. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Kind of like the end of Shawshank. (laughs) A little bit, a little bit. And then we hear hear in voiceover about how much of a natural Bishop was. That's what it was. 
That's what it was yes. in that stupid trivia in IMDb. That's what it was. The VO says how much of a natural bishop was at his job. And the trivia said, Robert Redford was also in the movie The Natural. That's right. <laughs> because that's trivia. 100% sure. accurate, 100% <laughs> trivial. <laughs> so then we see... Mirror let Bishop start to build assets and, and all this sort of thing. And that's when we cut back to the task force room and Chuck is questioning why Nathan would let a contract agent develop assets, but Mirror just says Bishop was that good. So Troy then steers the conversation towards Operation Rodeo, but before they can get into it, Director Wilson is outside the office and Troy gets up to speak to him. In the meantime, Mirror pries for more information about the op to the guys in the room. And he reads off the reflection of the table in handwritten letters sideshow, which Harker has sloppily written on mm -hmm. his piece. In big ass letters. If it's a confidential <laughs> operation, that's that's on Harker. That's it absolutely is, but they're trying to illustrate that, you know, Muir is the observational supremo. Yeah. Right? Right. So Chuck gets all flustered and Troy returns and then Nathan starts talking about Operation Rodeo, which kind of brings us into Act Two. <laughs> Operation Rodeo. So now we're back in flashback mode. We can see Muir with his young Chippy at a black tie affair. Uh, she was kind of cute. Actually, oh, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Muir is saying in a voiceover that he had an East German contact that told him there was a mole in the a embassy. Mole. A mole, 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 mole um, uh, in the embassy. And that the ambassador was their initial potential target, but then turned out to be out of the country when the leaked information got out, which meant it was his wife, Anne. Yes, well, Anne Cathcart. So we cut back to the scene and Anne Cathcart, played by the lovely and talented Charlotte Rampling. You know, even that, man, she's a good looking woman. Oh, yeah. Oh, good yeah. Lord. Don't see a lot of her on this side of the Atlantic in most things, but indeed, uh, indeed. I do remember she was in Dexter for a little while. Oh, was she? Yeah, she played his therapist, ironically. Oh. <laughs> so anyway, she comes up to talk to Nathan, and uh, again, we get voiceover where we hear Muir describing Bishop's role, where he was to drive an East German functionary across the border named Schmidt. You know what? <laughs> just a word, just a few words on the name Schmidt, which is Smith in German. It is the most lazy German name in any spy movie ever made. I don't even know if there's a German equivalent to Jones, but if there is, if someone speaks German, please let us know because I'm just going to start subbing Jones in for Schmidt every time it's used. I think Tony Scott was just focused on the aesthetics. Yeah, he may have been a little more concerned about how it looked than what was being said. That, that's yes. for sure. But anyway, we see Bishop being pursued and he's telling Schmidt to calm down, act like they're drunk, tells him his passport's in the glove box with a bottle of vodka, splash them on your shirt, right? Right. <laughs> He says he has to make a stop to make a call. Meanwhile, we cut to Muir talking with Anne, who's asking if he's bringing someone across. Which... I love, I love, right before this happens, I love how we do the 1991, or perhaps, well, the movie was made in 2001. So the 2001 version of Off You Go, Man Talk, <laughs> <laughs> like sends the young chippy to go talk to the, uh, the ambassador. The ambassador while yep. the adults uh, talk. <laughs> exactly. So by asking Nathan this question, she's basically confirming what he already knew. Right. That she is. The mole mole mole. <laughs> but Nathan plays coy and she walks away after giving him a gentle kiss a on little the kiss. cheek. A little gut kiss on the cheek. <laughs> and basically, like I said, we know she's the mole. And so. can, can I just say, too, this is another 
super fucking cool Robert Redford moment where he's in the black tie. And he huh? he is fucking James Bond in this in this moment right? at, this, at this party. Right. So I mean, cool. if only he'd had the the wherewithal to be born in England. Right. Well, and then the other part about the scene too is I love how after the little chippy goes away, she's like, "Well, she's a bit young, isn't she?" And, and Nathan goes, "Is that supposed to make me feel bad?" Right. <laughs> yeah, that was a great line. You know what? I just it just occurred to me with all the the brouhaha that they had over Daniel Craig being a blonde James Bond. Could you imagine if Redford if had Redford been English? Had been it? If he'd been English and they made him Bond, how everybody oh. would have lost their mind over Robert Redford? Yeah. I want to live in that alternate dimension. <laughs> I bet you in that alternate dimension, Tom Cruise is really tall. <laughs> anyway. The thing is, is that Redford would have been able to sell Bond because he's so smart. Absolutely. But have you ever heard him do an English accent? Uh, probably See, not. See, I don't good. think he ever has. I don't think he's ever had to or Cause, tried. Because or... he's never been in a movie where he probably needed to. Yeah. Not that I don't think he could do it. He's Robert Redford, but... He'd probably spend like six months with a speech therapist. It like, would seem really weird. With though. a with a accent therapist or whatever. It would be like listening to Sean Connery speaking like he's from New York. It just, it, it just wouldn't work. <laughs> no. It just wouldn't work. So we move back to Bishop who's inside the bar. He calls Muir. And you kind of get the impression of the people in the bar are in on this whole thing. Yes, yes. They're, you know, that's right definitely the like a safe house bar. Right. Now, bear in mind, he pulls up to this bar and parks on the sidewalk. Right. Which you're like, what is Although, going on? Although that plays, given that they're supposed, supposed to, be to be drunk. drunk. Exactly. More on that later. Um, <laughs> so Muir tells Bishop to throw out the bottle as they know that Schmidt's coming and they're going to be waiting at the border crossing. And both of them will be killed if Bishop drives them there. Bishop protests. This is where we get the first hint of, I don't want to start throwing people away like you do. Right. Amir says it's an order. And you're not sure he's going to follow through with that order. There's yeah. some good tension here. Yeah. So they hang up and then Bishop hauls off to the bathroom and takes something, some drops to make him throw up. Yeah, was, I couldn't tell what it was. It was just, I don't know. But it, it was so fast that I had a hard time believing because it was like... Oh, no. Have you never had like puke pills before? Oh, is it, or, is yeah, it instantaneous? It, yeah, there's like, there's a thing that you used to be able to get in joke shops that you could take to make yourself throw up. I and don't know why. it's like almost wanted. instantaneous? Oh, God. It's the most... <laughs> I may have actually had some of this before. Oh, no. <laughs> on a dare. Okay, fair right enough. Right up. Fair play. Right up. Fair play. Gets on your tongue and you're just like, nope, 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 nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> but he starts puking just as one of the East German cops behind him comes in, thus completely selling the story. Right. Right? And so the cops uh, drive off. They're like, oh, it's just a drunk and off yeah. they go. It's funny, too, that they like throw him against yeah. the car. He drags him for out, no reason. Him the just maybe they're trying to be like, well, I'm law and order and I'm kicking this drunk out of your bar yeah. type thing. I'm East German police. Right. We're just, you know, thugs and heavies. That's all that, that we actually are. Exactly. Um, but anyway, so they, like I said, they drive off and Bishop comes to the conclusion that he's got to follow along with what he's being told. Yeah. Tell Schmidt he has to get out of the car. Schmidt's not having any this of it. This is a heartbreaking it moment. It really is. It was almost like, it was almost like the fight scene in They Live. You know, <laughs> it was uncomfortable so, to watch and it an took awkward. entirely too long. <laughs> yeah. But eventually Bishop gets out of the car and yanks Schmidt out, throws him on the road. And then he's leaning against the car as he drives yeah, away. Absolutely. And so and I think this is a pivotal moment in Bishop's uh training here. Yes. Cause he, he finally is starting to like 
I don't know if this is necessarily for me. Yeah, it's like, yeah, I want to do it, but I, I don't know if the ethics of this jive with my Boy Scout upbringing yes. kind of deal. Yeah. But we then see Bishop arrive at the checkpoint, and they flash the flashlight on him, and they're holding a picture of Schmidt. Yeah, sure they enough. And oh, there's no Schmidt here. Even though Smith could be anybody's name, doesn't right. look like this Schmidt. <laughs> Important to know that Bishop doesn't know that they have that picture. So his running narrative in his mind is still like, this is fucked up. Right. This, there's no reason why I should have had to do this. Right. Even though, you know, the viewer knows better. Yeah, exactly. So we then move on to, oh my gosh, the nauseating aerial helicopter shots of oh. a conversation between uh, uh, Muir and, and Bishop, which, as noted before, Tony had to pay for out of his own pocket because even the even the production company was like... No, no, we're not going to spring for that. Well, and here's the thing. Here's the thing about this. I do think that the aerial shots play. What I hate about it is the way they cut it. They right with that aggressive speed rampy cutty thing. If they just kept it at normal speed and just let that thing coast around the building yep. as they're having the scene, it would be so much more powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Than like all the gimmicky fucking. We are shit. going from this quiet moment between two people. Yeah. And then you're speeding it up as you pull it around. And there's there, in the IMDb trivia, they say that Redford was very skeptical about the helicopter shot at the beginning. And then when he finally saw, saw it, it cut together, he understood what was trying to go on. But I mean, I don't know. Dude's a director. He might have been thinking, eh, slow it down. <laughs> <That's me. laughs> it's just a hair. Maybe. But anyway, so yes, we're watching the helicopter shots. No, they probably weren't worth the money he invested, but it's his money. He could do whatever the hell he wants. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to note that this is before they started doing their own movies under the Scott Free banner. So they were still not producing under their own production company when this movie came out. Ah. Or he was directing outside of, maybe that's what it's like. I think Scott Free was around before that. But he wasn't, when you see the painty bird thing turn into the trench coat guy, Okay. You know that either Ridley or Tony are financing that film. Okay. That's their production company. Gotcha. Right. And so nobody would have been questioning helicopter shots <laughs> if Floaty Raven Coatman had been at the beginning. <laughs> Just saying. Just saying. Um, I will say that shot is in the trailer. So they got their dollars out of it, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Tony got his dollars out of it because he Maybe. paid for it. I'm Maybe sure he, he got that back on the back end. At we'll that point, I bet you at that point he was getting not only his flat fee, but probably gross points yeah. on that. So he okay. made something on it but at least a helicopter shot back sure right so he probably felt good i got it in there i paid for the shot who cares if the movie didn't make any money (laughs) directors don't care how much money their movies make they just care that they look like they wanted to look art art exactly anyway so bishop is pissed off that he had to essentially leave schmidt and his family by the way yes for dead in order to keep the mission from going under but muir then says well schmidt wasn't the mission yeah he was just bait to get cathcart's to admit uh, yeah exactly that she knew what was going on Right. I mean, he goes on to tell Tom that Schmidt had already talked to the Russians about an American that he felt they could use. So he was ready to sell Bishop out anyway. Exactly. But uh, Bishop doesn't believe him. And then throws a chair off of, what, a 10-story building? I hope he didn't kill anybody. <laughs> yeah, was, that's all I could think about when I saw that. I'm like, what? Right. Well, yeah. <laughs> You're a spy. You're trying to not draw attention to yourself, and you throw a chair over a building? <laughs> when I was, when, so when I was, I don't know. In my early 20s, I was having this conversation with a friend of mine about stupid shit in movies. (laughs) And one of the things that he brought up was that 
what happens when people drop stuff off of buildings in a movie? Yeah. I said, wouldn't it be funny if somebody just made a movie of all the after effects <laughs> of things that are dropped out of buildings in a movie? Right? It's right. like an hour and a half of chairs falling on German people walking down in Berlin right. and things of that nature. And I'm like, I like this idea. And it stuck in my head for ever. It would actually make a great short film. Wouldn't it though? <laughs> if I get financing, I'll do it. Right. You have it very documentary style, you know, very much you know, like Spy Game 2001. <laughs> Shunk. You don't give them any premise for what it is. It's just the end result of whatever dropped landing on something. <laughs> That would be amazing. An engine flies off a 747. Superman's a good example of that. 1978, the lightning bolt hits Air Force One, wipes out the left wing of the plane. Half of that wing is gone, which means two of the engines, or one of the engines and half of the wing got blown up somewhere. Did it land in the ocean? You can just have it land in the Atlantic Ocean. (laughs) Did it land on a boat in the Atlantic Ocean? Possibly. (laughs) Right? But just just random shit like that that people have to watch the movie (laughs) to get the context. I think it would be brilliant, but you know, that's excellent. That's what we'll have when this podcast actually starts making us money. All right, sounds good. You know, in 2059, <laughs> when we're dead, when we're dead, and our kids are carrying it on for us, well, my kids anyway. Yeah. So Bishop Bishop then argues like you can't just trade these people like baseball cards. It's a great line. It is. There's no way around it. It's just a great line. It's like it's not a game. But Nathan argues that it's exactly what it is. And Bishop is angry that Muir essentially believes that sometimes killing assets is about the greater good, which the greater good. The greater good. <laughs> but you know, Muir's not wrong. Yeah. That's the nature of this business. It's indeed. You know, That's- and he says it doesn't get any easier. Muir says it doesn't get any easier from here. And if Bishop wants to walk. He can walk. Just don't take the same route the chair did. <laughs> Although he does kind of catwalk across that little beam. Right? <laughs> I'm just saying. Muir then fully admits that he used Bishop, but that if he had gone off the reservation, Muir would have left him to rot and die as well. Right. And that was a, that's an important scene for the two of them to realize. Yeah. That I like you, yeah. but you're just an asset to me. Right. Like you're, anything you're else. You're a contract. You're not, you know, I work for the CIA. You're contracting for the CIA. Right. There's a difference there. And I can let you go at any time. Yep, with no problem. Yeah. And of course, you know, Bishop runs off with a fuck your rules, Nathan. (laughs) And he's like, okay, but tonight they saved your life. (laughs) Right. Cut to speedy ramp aerial shots. Oh, God, it's so so bad. Because I even even watched, as an editor, I watched it from an editorial standpoint. And they speed ramp the shot around, and then they cut to a second aerial shot. It's a jump cut that is a completely different shot that then backs away from the tower. And I'm just like, this is just sloppy. This is just like... <laughs> and you, you can't lay this on the editor. This is all 100% T-Money Scott. Well, I mean, he's the one that signs off on it in the end. In Absolutely. the end, it's the director that says, lock the cut, that's but it. When that's you're going to drop your own probably 100K to make this shot happen, yeah. that's exactly what he wanted. That. Absolutely. So we go back to the Situation Room again. We come to find out that Cathcart's body was found in a hotel two months after defecting, which is funny. That means that she got caught and had to defect to the other side of the the wall, as it were. Chuck and the gang then go after Bishop again, asking where he was when Cathcart was killed. Right. Because they're trying to build this whole... He's a bad guy assassination thing. That's yeah. that's what they've glommed onto as what I think their premise is going to be for letting I think him they're hang. They're just searching for anything, anything at all to defame his character in any sort of way at all. 
And, you know, Nathan's not having anything to do with it. He says, well, they were both in Berlin, but, right. you know, he's not drawing any conclusions or anything from it. And we got to know that from Bishop's attitude about things, he wasn't going to Germany and killing any defectors. Right. Right. So Chuck asks what Bishop's reaction was to Anne's death. Muir asks uh, then what Sideshow is as a counterpoint. Yeah. <laughs> which derails everything. Right. And he does this so masterfully. Every time they try to ask him questions that will implicate him in something, Right. he throws something to off rail. It seems like it's just to protect Bishop, but it's really protecting his own ass. Yeah. He then asks why they want to burn Bishop so bad, and he gets nothing but crickets. He even turns to Troy to try and get him to give him something. Finally, Troy says to stop recording the tape, because did we mention that they're recording all and transcribing all of this? They're transcribing and recording the whole thing. Right, because if there's an investigation, they want to have it as it all plays out. But anyway, uh, so he tells them to stop recording, and Troy tells Nathan that Sideshow isn't a company that makes awesome one six scale action figures <laughs> but um, in fact but in fact was a bugging op that was listening to government offices in eastern china to get them data for the upcoming trade talks for the right. president they're worried that the bishop situation will ruin the deal so mir argues that china needs the us more than the other way around and that they should make a trade for bishop but then Troy tells Muir that Bishop wasn't part of the op at all. He was, in fact, on an outside job to rescue someone out of the prison. We then get the messy... Oh, God, I hate this. We get this <laughs> flash cut, super flash cut of the fruit stand where Hadley gets abducted. And just this echoey, help me! Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I remember that one popping up at the first viewing of this going... What the hell was that? Yeah. Is that a mistake? <laughs> I mean, you never know. In a Scott film, they sometimes will just throw some pretty things in there for no reason. Yeah. But I'm like, huh? Yeah. And I, I didn't say at the beginning, this is the first time I've ever watched this movie. Oh, really? It is literally, I think, the only Tony Scott movie I've never watched. Before. Really? Yeah. Because wow. all of the intel that I got from people about it was that it was terrible oh, and that no. it wasn't worth going to go see. So now I remember seeing this one and I liked it way back when it when it first came out. So yeah, I was really excited when we got a request to do this. I always kind of looked at this movie in a in a favorable light. But that's that's crazy that this is the first time you've watched this. Given my proclivities towards film, yeah. Yes. But as I've mentioned before in the podcast, the 90s were a bit of a drought for me <laughs> in terms of a lot of movies. Yeah. Because I was in the process of trying to raise a small child ah, yes. who couldn't go to most of the movies I wanted to go to mm, yes. and was married to someone who had little interest in seeing any of the movies I wanted to go to. <sighs> and also struggling human being had to decide whether I should have food for the week or go see the movie I wanted to go right. see. Believe me, you don't know how hard it was to feed myself rather than go see. Popcorn lasts. <laughs> Popcorn lasts forever. That's right. You're like McDonald's french fries. So they all then turn their attention uh, in the Situation Room to the news as the headline that Muir gave his buddy to run to CNN worked and is now broadcasting on CNN in front of, I'm guessing, some Chinese building. Yeah, in Hong Kong building? I don't know. Some random correspondent out there. Right. But this now is putting the CAI's plan to burn Bishop in danger. Chuck is, of course, furious and wants Mir's response and on the record to how this could have happened. <laughs> That's when we get the, the story about his uncle. When I was a kid, I used to spend summers on my uncle's farm. He had this plow horse that he used to work with every day. He really loved that plow horse. One summer, she came up lame. Could barely stand that offered to put her down. You know what my uncle said? 
No, Weird, what did he say? Said, why would I ask somebody else to kill a horse that belonged to me? And uh, Mir then puts on his coat and walks out of the situation room. <laughs> Take that, Chuck. That's right. Suck it, Harker. Suck it, Harker. <laughs> Why don't you do your little food dance again? <laughs> so we then cut to Mir walking somewhere quickly. And in the meantime, we see uh, Harker on the phone telling someone to get a hold of the FCC. So he's got something planned here yeah. with the FCC. And I'm like, well, he can't get the FCC to retract that, can he? But I don't know. But whatever, you know, it's moving the story along. We'll, of we'll course. Go. If we're going to go with some of the other shit in this movie, might as well go with the FCC saving the day. Yeah. Um, then we're back in Mira's office talking with Gladys, who's saying that Bishop should be okay after all because he thinks his ploy worked. Right. Which seems uncharacteristically optimistic for his character. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It doesn't quite. I think he thinks he did a mic drop when he left, yeah. but doesn't realize that the other DJ that he's battling <laughs> against is going to pick up that mic and throw down a sick beat. He's got a Japan release of a <laughs> of a James Brown lick that you've never heard. Muir tells her to put the last of his stuff into his storage locker. He tells Gladys he'll send her a postcard if he needs the key. She asks where from, and he's like, ha, 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 not a chance. You'll show up and try and clean the place and scare off all the native girls. <laughs> Which I love to think. I love the idea that he thinks that he's going to have this like array of native girls tending to him in the Bahamas. Well, he did say that it wasn't a problem to Cathcart, so... Well, yeah. <laughs> and as he's getting ready to leave, we get that sweet moment where they say goodbye in their own way, where he kisses her on the head, yeah. and then says, toodaloo! Okay, that's <laughs> basically what he does, he gives the toodaloo fingers, and then off he goes. And just as he's downstairs getting ready to turn in his badge and having a, a little quiet moment of sentimentality. Yeah, as he's looking at his badge and whatnot. Right. He's like... 30 years. Hmm. Uh-huh. He looks and catches on the TV that they, of course, have down in the hallway of the Central Intelligence Agency. Sure, of course. Uh, and the TVs it, are everywhere. They're e- everywhere. Even at the security checkpoint. Of course, because the security guard's got to not be paying attention to security. <laughs> in a late-breaking development, the story of Tom Bishop of the CAA being captured appears to be a hoax. They go on to say that Tom Bishop died 14 months ago uh, and that they believe that it was some sort of a mid-level Chinese functionary that was spreading this rumor to help or to try and derail the trade talks. the trade talks with the president of the United States. So and with that we get a more overdramatic intercutting of shots of Bishop being tortured. <laughs> I mean, this is Jack's torture scene going on here, right? The amount of times that they cut back to him. Which makes you wonder, why wasn't he dead when they got there? Right? I mean... Yeah, well, and then we get the later scenes as they're coming along, which we'll discuss. Right. um, Which is the end of the torture scene, effectively, in at least uh, Nathan's brain. Well, Um, and then we get another timestamp. Muir winds up heading back to his office, and Gladys is like, Dude, please! (laughs) Could you leave? Uh, He asked Gladys to try and get an imagery analysis for the military prison near Su Chow. Gladys is kind of great here. She's like, is there any chance I could lose my job over this? And he kind of like, eh. She's like, well, that's good. I don't want to work for Unger anyway. Right? I just love that. More Unger love. More making Unger the heel. Pretty fabulous. Then Mir goes back to the op center and tells Chuck that he knows who Bishop is after and why. And this is outside of the conference room. Right. Um, then he kind of hints that, you know, it's the kind of information that really could cause a lot of damage in a congressional hearing. You know, <laughs> yeah, just kind of hints like, mm, you know, they, I could be subpoenaed and I could maybe, you know, 
I don't know. Throw this out. <laughs> right. Gurr then winds up in a ma- in the map room. When he first like walked into that map room, I was like, where is he now? Like, but I forget, you also have to remember that Mira's been there for 30 years. He knows everything right. in this building. He knows everything he wants. Well, this is actually less of a map room and more of an operations planning center. Yeah. Because the reason he goes in there is to get more direct operational information on Sideshow right. to try and smooth talk this guy into what he's looking for yeah. on it. Because basically he wants to find out what kind of assets are in the area. And I don't know if he's doing this or if he figures that Bishop would have been smart enough to have a backup plan in place and he's trying to determine what that was. Right. Well, and it, it also, I think this is when he finds out who was heading off the the B plan operation to the right. I forget what that sergeant's name is or whatever. That's it's action, a commander. A commander. Um, yeah. And so... Yeah, so basically, for all intents and purposes, a commander would probably be a SEAL team commander. There you go. That's yeah. somebody that's operating off the coast of China that can deploy whenever they need him to deploy. And that's, I think, what he was trying to go to. He's like, Bishop was smart enough to have something in his back pocket. And I think it's, it's borne out by the fact that he finds out eventually it's, what is it, Operation Dinner Out? Yes. <laughs> and that was also the, the term that Bishop used as a backup plan back in Beirut in 85. Right. So... He starts asking the dude in the thing, Kapler, uh, for more information about where Sideshow's being run in comparison to where the prison is. Kapler eventually budges and tells him that it's about 40 minutes away by helicopter in the Penghu Island. By the way, I love this guy, Kapler. He is just like the epitome of who I imagine working at the CIA. Right. Like, Mira walks in, the guy's eating Chinese out of a box. Right. <laughs> like, it's just, you know, he's kind of pudgy, he's got glasses on, he's kind of really red-faced. Like He's, he's looks- probably what every CIA officer or analyst actually looks like. Yeah. <laughs> They're just a bunch of Harvard-educated, you know, Dorks. tie-wearing <laughs> nerds, Yeah, basically. <laughs> Mir then invites him to some non-existent retirement party to make him feel like he's part of the team and get him on his side, right? I didn't know you liked me. And instead of answering, he just walks out the door. (laughs) Click. So good. So as he leaves, uh, Harker then shows up, uh, seeing Muir bolt out of the office, and he goes in and and asks Kapler, what's going on? And Kapler's like... Oh, he was inviting me to his retirement party. I don't think you're invited. <laughs> it's, well, it's just funny because it's almost as if he now feels like he's one of the cool kids. That's right. Because he so got invited by the cool, cool guy. Right. So now he's like showing off to Harker. That's right. <laughs> Let's face it. Everybody in the CAA probably knows that Harker's a prick. Yeah. Right. Oh, so, yeah. so he's getting his little one up because, you know, Harker's the guy that comes into his office and demands things. Yes. Right. So this is Kapler's little payback. Well, and there's that little bit of talk, too, in this room between Muir and and Kapler where he's like, well, there's somebody upstairs that's saying that we don't have the funds for this and you know who I'm talking about. Right. (laughs) Right. Everybody knows who the fuck he's talking about. That's right. So it literally was the person that was saying that. So, you know, it's perfect. So Muir then gets a call from Gladys telling him that she's found the imagery analysis on the prison. He asks her for all the info on the military outfit that's operating in Penghu. Oh, and uh, tell Kapler my party's been canceled, he says. (laughs) Such a great afterthought. It really is. Don't leave him hanging, though. (laughs) Yeah. Because he might ask questions. That's right. Because he's there all night. And that also gives him an open line in case he needs more information. Right, exactly. Oh, man, it got canceled. But hey, you know, (laughs) can you tell me this, too? So all the while, this conversation is going on, and and Chuck is trying to get Muir to slow down and stop walking, which is great. (laughs) Nathan? Nathan? (laughs) He's just on his phone talking. Nathan? 
mummy, 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 mum, <laughs> mum, mummy. Right. He finally catches up and tells Mir they need him back upstairs a bit longer. They get it. <laughs> My favorite part of this movie, hands down, right now. They get in the elevator and uh, Mir yanks his chain by telling him he's got something in his teeth. And he's all <laughs> looks in the shiny reflection of the mirror or the elevator, rubs his teeth. It's fantastic. It's just like, hi, I have got you in my pocket. I, you know, I'm living in your head rent free right now. That's right. Not only do I have your number, I call it with impunity. <laughs> So now they're back in the task force slash conference slash situation slash sliding door room. <laughs> and Troy wants Muir to talk, but he's wanted him to talk the whole time. Muir says uh, it's Elizabeth Hadley that Bishop is rescuing from the prison. Who's Elizabeth Hadley, you might ask? Well, we just happen to have all these files on her. Let's bring them up. <laughs> right? So they bring up the files on Hadley. Muir then begins to describe what a nightmare Beirut was in 1985. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I was looking for real estate there in 85. I'm like, maybe this is a bad opportunity right now. <laughs> I mean, entire buildings are blowing up for no apparent reason. Because I was a 15 year old uh, real estate tycoon back then. Uh, anyway, so he goes on to say that they were out there to take out the terrorist Sheikh Salome, but they had to make it look like a, nat- a natural causes death to avoid more violence and bloodshed. The Sheikh operated out of Cyprus, but was coming to Beirut to see the family doctor. So just an interesting bit of trivia here. The entire scene in Beirut was filmed in Morocco, in Casablanca, Morocco, because at the time, imagine that, Israel was in the middle of yet another conflict escalation, kind of like what we're Mm -hmm. seeing right now, um, during the time that they wanted to film, and it turned out that Casablanca also never felt real safe either. No. (laughs) As uh, apparently the crew would hear about a nearby violent crime nearly every day while they were there. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> you, don't, you don't hear about a lot of movies being filmed in Israel, typically anyway. Yeah. Morocco, you get a lot of people. A lot. A lot of spy Jordan, movies. Morocco. Lot, yeah. A lot you of know. spy movies are done in Turkey. Yeah. Because they may not be safe, but they're accessible. Yeah. And generally speaking, nobody's trying to blow them up. Yeah. But um, uh, we kick back into flashback mode again. Yeah. And this time we're, we're using more of a, that reddish... Uh, sort of filmy stock footage mm-hmm. kind of graininess to the whole thing. But as we're going in there, we just get a huge amount of voiceover from Muir because uh, he's genuinely flashbacking and recalling this, you know, as they're going along. Right. We find out that Bishop had gone into Beirut ahead of Nathan to figure out how to get within striking distance of the Sheikh. And uh, Bishop has become a photojournalist as his cover, yeah. you know, just as Ben is a film editor as his cover. Um, <laughs> but apparently Brad Pitt is a... Uh, he's a very avid photographer. Yeah. So there's a thing that says that one of the Scots yeah. told him that uh, I think it was Ridley. Ridley looked at some of his photos and said, You could be a, a director. You're, yeah. You've got a good eye for it, right? Thank God he's not a director. Um, <laughs> we have enough. We really do. But they show this whole thing, you know, where he's running around in the middle of a combat scene with his camera. Yeah. And, you know, yours like, Yeah, it was just like Vietnam. He fit in like, <laughs> he fit right like, in. He fit right in. <laughs> like, no, no adjustment for him at all. So, anyway, Bishop figures out a way to get to the Sheikh would be to go through Hadley, who worked at a refugee camp where the Sheikh's doctor also worked at yes who i think they're related in some like their cousins or something like yes that. they're cousins i believe that was something that was in there bishop ends up negotiating a deal with her 
to bring in medical supplies for the camp in order to get closer to the Sheikh's doctor. The CAA then gets a story printed in the Times to legitimize his cover there. Because I think the premise here wasn't, she didn't know he was working for the CIA. Yeah, The premise thought, was, I'll get you supplies if you can get me access to the camp to take pictures for a story. For a story. Yeah. Right. You know, because she's completely clueless as to what he does. Yet. Until Nathan. We get that restaurant oh, scene. Oh, God, yeah. And we're getting there. <laughs> so they still didn't know, however, when the shake was actually going to arrive. So as Mir puts it. So uh, I didn't have the usual time to butter him up, which means we needed twice the sex with half the foreplay. <laughs> Keep those one-liners coming there. Yeah. Nathan. And of course, you know, we cut to Bishop being in bed with Hadley because, dude. Why wouldn't you? Who <laughs> wouldn't? Right? So Bishop, I mean, on both sides of that coin, really. really I mean, yeah. Brad Pitt and her? Yeah. I mean... It, it seems like... It's a win-win it's for... It's a win-win for everybody. <laughs> it, re- it really is. It really is. So Bishop gets a call from Dumay, who's kind of like their local on-the-ground, boots-on-the-ground guy. Yeah, the guy that drives him everywhere and all that right. sort of thing. He's a native or he's a local. Yeah. So he's a blender. He blends right in. <laughs> so he gets a call from Dumay that uh, Muir has landed in Beirut and that Dumay wants to meet. Bishop makes a job-related excuse to Hadley. Uh, I think he says something about Israel attacking and that it's on the south side of things and that he has to go out. And, and take pictures yeah. of it. I love his comment where he goes, he's like, yeah, but she's like, by the time you get there with all the checkpoints, it'll be new. He's like, I know the pictures aren't going to be great. You know, <laughs> a total photography thing. Like, he's yeah. going to have, he's going to have noon lighting, which means right. no shadows, nothing to build any kind of thing on. Right. No magic hour. No magic hour. No nothing. So Bishop finds out that the shake is on the move and has booked the top floor of some apartments in Beirut for two weeks. We then get a quick shot of the shake and a fancy boat, and then uh, we cut to Mir shaving some ramshackled welling. It's it, like there's not even a roof on it. It's just he's just outside and he shaved. Did you? Yeah, yeah. It's a Beirut al fresco. Is, is that a thing that exists? Probably not. <laughs> it was just so weird that they did that whole thing. That whole scene. I don't know if it I was like... I imagine there were a lot of buildings without roofs in Beirut well, 1985. yes. Yes. <laughs> That's so true. So I'm just going to say it's probably technically accurate. <laughs> so Bishop comes in while he's shaving. He says, my <laughs> God, you're hideous. Why do you even bother? And you get it. I missed you too. <laughs> you know, a, it's such a good exchange there. Just right. Kind of- it's such a bromance exchange. <laughs> and it's good because it moves the narrative along. They've been doing this so long now that they've, they're, they've kind of become buddies. They've got yeah. the shorthand. So it just makes the harsh reality of what's going to happen even more harsh and reality ee yeah ee oh my god i love this next part yeah. too well it's it and the whole mexican restaurant thing is like butch cassidy and the sundance kid anyone yeah except that it's sundance kid and the sundance kid anyone yeah you know really <laughs> i wonder i can't remember what the name of the food was that bishop says he's like yeah i found a, a place for great something it's a mexican food i've literally never heard of i don't even remember and you know, not to give away the undisclosed location, but the undisclosed location is in close proximity to a lot of good Mexican restaurants. Right. And yet I have never heard of this particular food that they bring now up. Now we need to look it up. We can now do we it on a future them. Intel report. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> um, so we, we get this little moment where they're literally running through Beirut to get to this Mexican breakfast joint. <laughs> it's so right? good. It's so good. Gunfire is going off. They're hiding behind rocks you're and gonna cars. Make, you're going to make a beautiful corpse. <laughs> right. It felt, a, it felt a little contrived, but it was still yeah. it was still a good moment of camaraderie that they were trying to show them there. So they get to the restaurant, they start eating, and here's where Jason just hits inaccuracy central. <laughs> I mean... First off, first off, 
the baseball cap is inaccurate for the time frame oh, that they're that's in. Right. Yeah. Right. He's wearing a San Diego Padres hat, which is good for the character, but that was a Padres cap that didn't start until 1991. So it was accurate we're for supposed the to be in 1985. 1985. So should have been brown with the orange SD on it. How do I know this? <laughs> I was briefly a Padres fan for like four minutes. Then I went, jump right back to the Cubs, which is where my allegiance should have been the whole time. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so the whole premise is thing they're talking, they're eating. Bishop gives Nathan a birthday present on his actual birthday. Yes. Where he goes with some detail. It's like, because Nathan's like, they have seven different birthdays on file for me. None of them are right, right? Right. And he's like, yeah, there's seven different birthdays. None of them are right. They, they're not right in... Uh, what was it? I had to talk to the KGB. The- yeah, the KGB didn't have it right. I think the Mossad said they didn't have it right. <laughs> yeah. He's like, you know how hard it was for me to find out when your actual birthday was? And that was the whole premise. He's like, but I'm good. I was trained well. I was trained well. <laughs> so he hands it this really nice stainless steel flask or maybe sterling silver. I don't know. Yeah, with it's like cool. a leather. A little leather wrap that you can hook onto your belt and whatnot. And he's like, oh, this is, you know, really, really nice. Where did you find this in Beirut? He's like, I didn't. I had it dropped in on a courier bag coming out of London. And I think that's where he mentions Operation Dinner Out initially. Yeah. He's like, I got a new racket, Operation Dinner Out. Right. And so, <laughs> which, you know, find out later, is key yes. <laughs> to getting something else out of something. Right after this, Bishop points out uh, to Mira that the entourage is gathering at the pier, which is my second problem. He points. <laughs> after, spy, his, after his boss has his, literally told him, you have to not react to your environment. Right. He points, look over there. <laughs> There's an entourage. Uh, with a terrorist. Like, with the terror, Just like the entourage that showed up in Vietnam when I was trying to shoot that guy. See my finger pointing? Nobody's checking out the two American guys eating at the Mexican restaurant that was built here for all the American people. I mean, it would be less egregious if they had just spent part of the montage saying you got to be subtle. Right. Look over there. Yeah. When you know Robert River was like, yeah, I saw them when they were coming down before you even noticed. Right. Because I'm motherfucking Nathan Muir. Right. I saw them before you were born. <laughs> yeah. I saw that one coming before I even got into Beirut. But anyway, the shake showing up with a big bunch of people. We then cut to uh, Bishop and Muir. At their vantage point, watching the whole thing go down, Bishop explains that the Sheikh is in to get a checkup and that the doctor that he wants to use is his cousin. So, I mean, it's a great mark, right? You know, they yeah. trust it and it, the, the, they're related. There's no reason this guy won't be able to get in to see the Sheikh. Exactly. So it's a good get on Tom's part. Yeah, for sure. I do find it a little dubious that the Sheikh would come into an unstable place like Beirut just to get a checkup. Why not bring the doctor to you? Yeah, that was the only part of this that fell f- fell apart for me. I was like, this should be something more serious. Well, and if you're going to come all the way into Beirut to get a checkup, wouldn't you have your own people escort your doctor to come see you? Yeah, again, this whole segment doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it feels like you know Chris McQuarrie and Tom were like, okay, now we've got the stunt we want. <laughs> How do we wrap it all together? Yeah. So yeah. it felt very contrived in a number of things where they just sort of like, eh, I know we talked about it, but I really want to see this happen right. kind of thing. It's Because it's all leading to blowing up a gigantic building. Right. Well, and I think a lot of this is maybe ignored. I think maybe Tony Scott ignores the, the plot hole because ultimately his goal is just to set up 
this thing that divides Muir and Bishop. And so he's less concerned about the validity of the actual mission. Right, and more about than, the outcome. Than, yeah. That's fair. I'm sure that there's reasoning for it. I mean, at the end of the day, nobody is going to make a movie about how things actually happen in the CIA. Right. Because it's really boring. Right. Right. So <laughs> I, I get it. But uh, we then have this little playful banter um, where Bishop and Mir are discussing Bishop's contact. And Mir's like, you know, uh, blonde or brunette, you know? <laughs> is she pretty? Is she pretty? <laughs> and uh, he then asks if she's still of any use. And he's like, yeah, not for us. <laughs> yeah. And that's your key. You know, not for you and me. But for me... I'm still going to get plenty of use out of that because she's <laughs> drop-dead gorgeous. And he's also falling in love. Falling in love. Oh, love. I love love. Twoo-wove. Twoo-wove. <laughs> uh, he, he's blaving her every night, I'm guessing. So anyway, uh, we immediately get this <laughs> tiny little... It's that little furtive look that Redford does so good where yeah. he almost raises up the, the binoculars and he's like... And then goes back to what he's doing. Yeah. I've seen him do it in a bunch of movies. Yeah. It's, that's his signature, right? It's like, okay, moving on, yeah. right? Anyway, so Muir then breaks it to Bishop that Langley wants Nathan to liaise with a Lebanese militia group just as a backup plan. And however, Bishop explains those guys are unpredictable cowboys, and Muir's like, yeah, I know. That's why we need to do it our way. Right. However, he does fully get that taken care of because that's his job, well, right? Yeah. Hey, he's he, not contract. He's he's a the, company man. The mission yeah. matters. And so we then see the Sheikh arrive at the apartment building. I can't remember what it says on it, but it's like la op or na op or op. There's a lot of know. A's involved. Yeah, there's there's double A's at the end of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what it is. <laughs> Shanana. <laughs> sure. The Shanana <laughs> Hotel. I, I don't know. But anyway. <laughs> So uh, we kind of do a hard cut here and find out that Bishop is already late for the meeting with the doctor where they're going to try and recruit him. Yeah. Uh, both Muir and Dumay are annoyed and concerned when he shows up. And it's kind of like you're 10 minutes late. Every minute counts. Yeah. And I just like you start to see the shades of the real Muir in between the, the sort of chummy, chummy, brotherly camaraderie. Yeah, they break that camaraderie thing and, and things get deadly serious right there. And even Dumay is like, all right, I'm going to keep my eye on you. Cause yeah, because, I mean, you... you you're know. slipping, dude. Yeah, you're I, slipping, I, my guy. I work for this guy, not for you. <laughs> yeah. You know, right? <laughs> Bishop apologizes and heads across the street well, with Muir to uh, meet Dr. Ahmed. He introduces Muir to the doctor. We cut back to the CIA and the president where we find out that Ahmed's father was something of a diplomat, but that he and his wife died of carbon monoxide poisoning. Jumping back to that scene, Muir tells Ahmed that this may not have been an accident. In fact, I think he he, he intimates that he it wasn't. Out, a, yeah, yeah it wasn't an accident. And says, you know, we may be able to offer you the opportunity to do something about that. That would be that mutually beneficial, beneficial for both of us, right? right? We then cut to the next day, and we see Bishop leaving Elizabeth's apartment with Dumay surveilling him. Dumay then reports back to Mir, telling him the bishop has been at her place every night. We get more voiceover from Mir about his concern that Elizabeth could botch up the whole operation, which then prompts what comes the next. The amazing restaurant scene. Right. This scene is... Whew. You know, what I like about it so much is just, again, Robert Redford just showing his chops, like able to switch from being the most likable person in the room to being the most despicable person in the room. Oh, yeah. Like that. We, we got the, uh, what was the indecent proposal? Yes. This is this is, this yeah. is that, that form of Robert Redford where he just becomes two people that are the same person. Yeah. 
just you know, becomes a complete prick. Yeah, exactly. Scene. Sir, like, you know, Tyler Durden. Anyway. Harumph, 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 harumph. When then we cut to the scene where uh, Bishop and Hadley are having lunch together at a restaurant. Mir walks in, walks up to the bar and orders a drink. And then, you know, Bishop starts like, oh, I know this guy over here. He's the guy that got me my thingy for the thingy. Works for the State oh, Department. Oh, he works at the embassy or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He got and, me my my passport or whatever. Yeah, he got me my passport or whatever. He's like, he calls over the waiter. And he's like, the gentleman over there, give him a double of the worst scotch that you have in the building. <laughs> Because he's still playing off the chummy thing. Yeah. He hasn't realized that Nathan's already like, yeah, I'm done with you. I'm back on mission mode as we're going through here. And you're putting it in danger. So Nathan goes over and is initially acting like, you know, what the cover story was going to be. Yeah. So there's some banter and he's like, oh, said he needed to stay in longer. I'm guessing you're the reason that he needed to stay in longer, right? <laughs> right. And and she's like, oh, well, I don't know. Gee, golly, gosh. Go. Gosh, oh. Yeah. Um, and then they start getting into discussion about, you know, the politics. What do you do for a living? She's like, oh, I'm an aid worker. Right. And, this, and he's like, oh, it must be nice not having to take a side on anything. Yeah. And then it just gets deadly serious. Oh, man. He starts laser focusing on the research that he already knows about Hadley and starts which, pointing- which- Bishop never bothered to do. Never bothered to do the diligence on it. Yeah. Finds out that she's an expat from from England. We don't know why, but she can't go back. All she has is where she's at now. Right. And really just starts trying to dissect her motives. Oh, and that her family won't talk to her yeah, anymore. Her that talk. she's a fanatic. She's considered to be a fanatic and a bunch of other things. Yeah. And meanwhile, you got Brad doing his smoldering on Pistachu look. Right. Which he's so good at. Right, that <laughs> yeah. that slow build, slow burn, I'm going to kick your ass kind of thing. Kind of reminds me of in Seven, just before the what's in the box moment. Yes, exactly. <laughs> He's just doing the wind up and, and whatever else. And finally, she has enough. She realizes at this point that... Nathan is not a State Department guy. And now she's realizing that Tom is, is not, not a photographer. Tom's like she, not Terry. There's Yeah, Tom's not Terry. There's something else that's going on there. Yeah, And she goes storming out, tells him to just do whatever you want to do with your friend. I'm done with you, more or less. Right. And, you know, off she goes. So then Bishop basically confronts Mir and says, you know, basically, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. And Mir starts pointing out with pictures that Hadley was getting financed for the camp by a guy who's part of Hezbollah. Yeah. Right. And that he's using her for God knows what. Bishop maintains that he has it all under control and tells nothing to stay out of his personal life and walks off. Yeah. Mir's like, personal life. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Sure. <laughs> sure. Good luck, Terry. <laughs> yeah. We then get the argument outside between. Almost uh, a likable asshole, though. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can't not see those dimples and not be like, but it's Bob. <laughs> So we cut outside to an argument between Elizabeth and Bishop, where Bishop wants to know if he's being played because all the information Nathan just laid on him that he didn't take the time to figure out for himself right. now has got him thinking, yeah. oh shit, she's playing me, right. right? She admits to being a fanatic, that she's not welcome in London because they bombed a building owned by the Chinese that was supposed to be empty, but turned out it wasn't. She says, that's something that I have to live with, but I'm doing the, basically, I'm doing the best I can with the situation to put myself in to make things better. Right. And she, you know, they go, but am I being played? Well, you know, I have to make deals with people to get the things that I need to get. And sometimes those deals do not work out well right. for the people that are involved. Right. Right. Um, but she then asked for his real name and he keeps saying, Terry, what's yeah. your real name? Terry. Yeah. What's your real name? And Terry. He won't do the quid pro quo. He won't because 
He now realizes that as much as he doesn't want to admit it, Mira was right the, the whole Mira time. Mira was right the whole time. Doesn't really change his feelings, but you know, he realizes that now she's a jeopardy to the mission and getting the mission accomplished. Right. So she gets out, takes a taxi. That's the end of that. We cut back once again to Task Force Room Central. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> Where uh, Mira continues saying that. The bombing had claimed the life of the premier's nephew that uh, Hadley had done. And so the Chinese had a huge problem with her. Huge problem. <laughs> huge. China. Huge problem. <laughs> the interesting line in here is where uh, Chuck asks how well Muir knew Hadley. Oh, this was this was something I wanted to bring up. Because Chuck is asking whether Muir knew Hadley and he's like, well, only in passing. But I'm, I'm like, why do they keep that in there? Like, did Muir know Hadley prior to Bishop knowing her? And if so, was there an encounter that happened? Well, like, one, one I, could intimate that the Chinese bombing maybe could have been at Muir's behest. Yeah. I mean... You just don't know. Yeah. It's, it's just, a slower... It's a throwaway line that maybe there was more extrapolation in and they just didn't go into. Well, and here's the other thing. Like, as soon as I was doing my notes on this part and I heard that line, I, I like, immediately, probably foolishly, went to Reddit to see if anybody had theorized whether or not that... Whether Muir and Hadley had ever gotten together or anything... And I didn't find that, but I found this whole other thing, this whole other crazy theory that Muir had been married to Hadley and that ultimately he was saving Hadley at the end. Uh, you know, and that the whole, st and all the stories that, all the yarns that he's spinning in this task force room were all out of his head. <laughs> so that was like a whole separate theory that I that I found wound myself into. Wow. Yeah. I think the most interesting thing about that is the fact that anybody's talking on Reddit about this movie. <laughs> yeah, true. That is true. You can find anything on Reddit. I mean, <laughs> you really can you and really probably can. shouldn't. Yeah. Um, Best it, to leave Reddit alone as often as possible. Yeah. <laughs> Except for when you're trying to find out the answer to some obscure question. It is really good for that. Yeah. As long as you choose the right path to the Choose Your Adventure book. Right. Take it with a grain of salt. Whew, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so anyway, so Mir then responds to another question saying that Bishop never brought up the conversation after finding out about Hadley and he didn't push it any further. Yeah, they just... It, it was done. The thing was what it was. Bada boom, bada bing. However, I'm pretty sure he's lying here. <laughs> I think he knows that things continued on after the fact. Yeah. So then, because how else would he know that that's who he was going after? Yeah. So he knows. Yeah. Nathan knows everything. Nathan knows everything. He man. knows. He knows all the spy stuff. He knows how to make good hot dogs. Um, <laughs> he knows everything. So we cut back to the flashback scenes in Beirut. Amir and Bishop are waiting in a car by the beach. And Nathan tries to make small talk about getting some work done in South America. I think... This is the part where he clearly is trying to smooth things over, but Bishop is still not, clearly not over it. No, no, and and turns out to not going to be getting over it. <laughs> right, ever. He's, he's going to complete the mission. He's going to stay amicable, but yeah. he's, made a, he's made his choice here because he's in love. Yeah. Right? And he doesn't yeah. want to not be in love. Yeah. Who doesn't not want to be in love? True. Silly. So just as they're going through this, Dumay rolls up in his car carrying Dr. Ahmed. The doctor and Muir switch cars so Bishop can tell Dr. Ahmed just how to kill the Sheikh. Also, it should be noted, and I think about this scene, he does such a good job in here, because, and it should be noted that the actor who plays Dr. Ahmed is Moroccan, and he had to learn all his lines phonetically. And so considering that he's just spitting out these, you know, nonsense words to him. Right. 
they come across so well. So because he's like, have you ever killed somebody? You know, we get that whole scene where he's like, is it hard to kill another person? And you know, Brad's like, yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, I when I read that, I kept thinking maybe they had an earpiece. Oh, on so the maybe, side you couldn't see, so he could and, react. He was or, just speaking the words the way they were being spoken to him. So somebody uh, was reading them with the correct emotional inflection and everything. Uh, okay. And he was simply parroting what he was hearing. It could like be maybe that Tony too. Scott could have been in there and be like, have you ever had to kill someone? And have you ever had to kill someone? It was just literally aping what he was hearing. Because when you that. say phonetically, sure, but the problem with learning something phonetically is you learn how to say it, but you don't know how to convey the emotion behind the language if you don't right. speak the language. So clearly somebody was... So either he was getting the verbal coaching before the scene, right? and he was able to retain it, or I think to keep the, the dialogue, because they're very dialogue-heavy, both scenes he's in, yeah. that they were just reading him as dialogue as they were going. And, you know, they could have taken it out. You can edit out with everything that's being faster, more right. aggressive. Right. You have directors saying things during that all the time that they pull out later. Right. And the more I think about it, a lot of the scenes with the doctor, it's shot in a way where... It's a single on the doctor, single on the other guy talking to him. Single on the doctor, single on the other guy. So you're never seeing them both in the same frame at the same time. So he's not having to remember and bounce off the other person. Right. They cut the dialogue well. If that's the case, then good job on editing with that. Yeah. Because it was super convincing. Right, for sure. And I think part of it is, too, is just this guy that plays Dr. Ahmed, he just looks the part. He's good at emoting without... Even mm-hmm. saying anything. A very quiet demeanor. Yeah. Comes off like someone that would be a doctor working at a refugee camp. Right. Who's kind of now in over his head. Yeah. And just looking for reassurances. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So we learned that Ahmed is to give the checkup four days from this point. And we hear this VO about how hard waiting for this to get through is. Right. While Bishop is having to babysit this guy. Right. The intel suggested that Sheikh was planning a major attack on a civilian sector in West Beirut in this time frame. So it sort of ups the necessity to get it done. Right. So Bishop, and if, and if that wasn't enough, <laughs> <laughs> Muir tells of a meeting with the Lebanese militia in order to satisfy Langley. But in the meantime, Muir describes the waiting as just being the very worst, and he does it very colorfully with language that's very enjoyable to listen to. Yeah. I don't remember any of it. He's just—he's he, basically—he's mirroring his way through this one too. Yeah, you know, a little bit of snark goes a long way. So now we cut to Elizabeth Hadley in her apartment, and Bishop shows up. He then tells her his real name. And they should have time stamped right here too. I will mention too, I took note to this exact moment. I don't know why it sticks out in my head, but this moment when he shows up at her door and she comes to the door, it's probably the best she looks in the entire movie. So it kind of makes sense that next thing you know. So we cut back to Muir saying that on Thursday, the Druze and the Party of God started a street war in South Beirut, which outside of the historical context is a very silly sounding phrase. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just going to say. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you remember. (laughs) Party of God sounds like a techno Christian band. (laughs) Right. You know, all I remember from this one scene, and there's a slight age disparity between you and I. It's not huge. But enough that in the 80s, I was probably more aware of a lot of things politically than you probably yes, were. for sure. In that, that four-year span. And I remember Druze just being the buzzword for the Middle East. You know, 
the the Druze Muslims as opposed to the Shiite Muslims and all of these other things. You don't hear about the Druze very much anymore. Uh, the only time I hear about the Druze is when we're talking with our buddy Drew. And we're like, <laughs> what do you think Drew's doing? I don't know. <laughs> Drew's probably making art. That's all Drew's do's. <laughs> Shout out to Drew. Anyway, sorry. That was not where I was going with it. I was just saying it was funny to hear a word that had been such a part of my upbringing as a teenager. Yes. Has generally fallen out of, I'm sure there's still Druze Muslims, but sure. we don't hear about it in the news cycle like we used to. Right. And now, I will say this was one of those moments too where I was convinced that it was archival footage that they showed right here. Oh, I'm sure it was. Tanks. Yeah. Like, I'm kind of thinking like, this is just actual footage. I think it was actually footage because this actually happened. So I'm thinking it's just straight out of the yeah. footage from what actually happened to illustrate it. Or something similar. You never know what you can find. Yeah. But then we cut to Mir getting a phone call from Bishop, who says that the Sheikh wants to see the doctor within an hour, and he's starting to get antsy. The problem, however, is that the Amal retaliated against the Palestinians and shelled the entire refugee camp. So Bishop had to let the doctor go with Hadley to treat people, right. which then gets Muir all pissed off. Right. He's like, like why'd you, you let, let him, him go? You let him, you let her take him? Yeah. Where are your priorities, dude? Yeah. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I know. I, I can fix it. I can fix it. He's Chekhov While Star he's Trek, driving. you know, yeah. <laughs> I can fix this. I can fix this. <laughs> I can do this. I can do this. So at this point, you know, Muir is now considering his options and has to make the audible and call out the Lebanese uh, militia the guys. The Lebanese militia guys yes, to make like, sure that this gets done. Well, and it, I mean, credit to Muir. He doesn't do it right away. He kind of holds and holds and holds and holds. And finally, he's like, I, I got to do it. it. I got to do this. This has, this has to get done. Yeah. So we finally, we get some action of Bishop wildly trying to drive through Beirut to get the doctor. Meanwhile, we're seeing Dumay surveilling the Sheikh while Muir is considering, again, whether to pull the trigger on the militia. We cut back to Bishop arriving at the camp where it is a total mess. We got bomb shell holes everywhere. People missing limbs. People and- missing limbs. It's it's a whole thing. He grabs the doctor, heads back toward the Sheikh. Uh, Elizabeth is not happy. By no, this at all. She's like, "What the hell are you doing? We, we need him. What? What? Are you, hello, what, 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 Terry, what, Tom, Terry, <laughs> Terry, Tom. Tom. But uh, off he goes. So, all right. So we get more shots of Bishop and the Doctor in the car. The Doctor is scared out of his mind. Go figure. Uh, as they are literally dodging bullets and flying through chaos. In the meantime, Muir calls Dumay to ask what's going on. He says it looks like they're packing up. He says it could be ten minutes, could be an hour. You just don't know. Yeah. And then we cut back to Bishop and Ahmed trying this, to get there in time. This Okay, and this moment here, it's almost silly. I, I'm just barely willing to accept it because, yes, it could happen, but it's also such a stereotypical thing that you would see in a spy movie of two people trying to race through a war-torn area right. where you drive through some kind of food cart. Well, yeah, because it's the Middle East. The roads are small. Right. The food carts are prevalent. Yeah. You're going to hit a food cart. You're gonna when you're in a hurry, you're going to hit, hit a food cart. <laughs> That's just what happened. I mean, it, 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 I mean, at least it wasn't fruit this time. At least it was fish. Hey, you know. <laughs> he could have he hit a cart and, you know, or driven past a guy on a bed of nails. That's what, I mean. <laughs> or swallowing a sword. Swallowing a sword. <laughs> so many things could have happened. A food cart seems at least logical. Also, I appreciate the fact that afterwards there is a mob after them. Rather than in most movies, 
they just keep going and no one would care. They would just be all in shock. Everyone would be in shock. No one would be angry. Right. At exactly. least in this, this is the logical well, is reaction it though? Because, to hitting I mean, a food cart. Clearly, as Hollywood has shown us, food carts get hit all the time. I would think people would think it's just normal. <laughs> it's just Nobody's going to get an uproar about a food cart getting hit. It's just Thursday. Right, exactly. <laughs> oh, finally, I was wondering if that was going to happen today. I mean, look at the time. But anyway, this <laughs> oh, gets... Oh, Jeff got hit today. Oh. Poor bastard. Poor Jeff. <laughs> you know, I hear he... I, I hear he doesn't even have spies in a car hitting his food cart insurance. <laughs> He's hosed. But anyway, this forces a two out on foot, which is necessary. Being chased by said mob. And now we're back to Muir, and he finally calls the militia and says, look, man, you got to go. Um, it's so weird. Weirdly specific. Go at 420. He's talking in Lebanese there subtitles. It says 420. And I'm like, do we need that 420 there? Uh, 420. Uh, 420. <laughs> at least they resisted the urge to do a 420. Gong, gong. Just before it all started. <laughs> so we get this intercutting of Bishop and the doctor running from the mob, the militia getting ready for the bombing, and the shakesmen continuing to pack everything up. Finally, Bishop and the doctor get close to the Sheikh's apartment, and Bishop sends him on his way with some final words of encouragement. Which is... <laughs> you can do it, Doc. You got this. I know. He's just like... He just kind of shoves him out there. Okay, go. Go. It's fine, right? Yeah, you're fine. You're fine. You're fine. I'm giving you all the information you need in the car. Yeah, it's hard. Go. <laughs> yeah. Go. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Go. <laughs> go. I promise you, you're going to be fine. Nothing is going to happen to you. Unless the building blows up, you are going to be fine. <laughs> the doctor then walks up. And just about to get into the apartment building, I mean, walks in to the security guards, right. flashes his ID, whatever it is that he has. Right. Oh, yeah, you're the doctor. Go on in. Nobody's worried about security at any point here. Yeah. Um, and then here comes the Lebanese militia rolling on down with motorcycles and pickup trucks. And chaos ensues, man. Yeah. Motorcycle does a almost woo-style jump. Yeah. <laughs> Guy gets shot, boom, on the ground. Right. Truck comes barreling in, boom. Shag gets shot in the head, drives into the Go, building. Yeah. Bob's your uncle. Kablooey. Kablooey. And also, according to the notes, Scott had to convince them to blow this building up. Well, he had to convince That's right. the, he had the, to... the, the, the royalty yes. that it was okay to blow up a building. Now, how and, do you have that conversation, I wonder? Yeah. How do you convince Moroccan royalty? We need to blow up this building. Or a building. It's hard to know. Hard to know. It's really we're, hard to we know. We are not in the room. We are not there. Thank God we're not there. <laughs> yeah. Because, um, man, that would be bad. So, anyway, building blows up. People die. Um, including the doctor. Including the doctor who, uh, I mean, I guess if you look at it this way, he did get the job done. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the mission was accomplished, just not in the way they had originally planned on it. Yeah. It's unfortunate. But, yeah. uh, you know. That's yeah. what happens. This is not silly spy shit. This is this is actual spy shit. Actual spy shit. Actual spy shit. Yeah. So we cut to a week later at uh, whatever airport is still fully functional in Beirut. <laughs> and Mir and Bishop are getting set to fly to Karachi. Hey, I know a great restaurant in Karachi. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to say it. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> uh, uh, Bishop tells Mir he's done and he's moving on to another operation. And he's just like, I can't play by your rules anymore. Yeah. Sorry. See you later. We cut back to Mir saying, and that's the last I saw of him. Yeah. You know, that was it. So we see Bishop at a cafe, content with his decision. It then goes up to Elizabeth's apartment, only find out that it's cleared out. And then there's a Dear John letter waiting for him. Uh. And that, my friends, brings us, thankfully, God blessedly, (laughs) to Act 3. So... 
Then we're back at the CIA and we see that Troy has received the imagery analysis to the prison in China. And we get a quick cut showing that Muir has seen this just kind of out of the corner of his eye. Because as we have established already, that Muir is a very observant fellow. Absolutely. Troy then leaves to his office to brief the White House and Muir goes after him and he <laughs> he just barges right into his office and his, his secretary's like, hey, you can't go in there. And Troy's like, it's it's fine. And just let him in. He's, it's, it's Nathan. It's, it's Nathan. It's what he does. So Muir essentially pleads that they need to save him because he's one of theirs and he kind of appeals to his morality more or less, but he's also there for other reasons than just trying to plead with him. Right. And, you know, Troy's like, well, I, I have to be at the White House, so I got to go. So Troy leaves, and Nathan then slyly, after Troy is out of sight, he drops a pack of cigarettes on his desk and then starts leaving. And just as he goes past Troy's secretary, he's like, oh, I forgot my cigarettes. I got to go get it. The Going sec- back to his training early on. Yes. And the secretary is like, no, I'll go get them for you. You stay here. So, of course, which is exactly what he wants. And that's when he pockets the imagery analysis that he needs of the prison. So the secretary comes back with his cigarettes that he uses, allegedly. And then we get another 5.42 p.m. Time's a wasting. <laughs> Time's a wasting. And uh, Mir makes it back to his office where Gladys has left him a bottle of scotch. Aww. Aww. Gladys is good. We then get that clever moment where Mir thinks to switch the imagery analysis of the Su Chow prison with the imagery analysis of the Bahamas coastline, since they look so similar. Right. And it's kind of like the one thing that will assure him the win when it all comes down. Or or maybe it's just a backup plan. You know, maybe he's just kind of thinking ahead. He's got got so many wheels within wheels turning here. Wheels within it's wheels. It's really hard to know what's going on. Yeah. I do like that he pulls that post-it note off of the one from the Bahamas, though. Yes. You know, as requested. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he then goes into Unger's office, oh, Unger, to uh, call his finance person to liquidate his entire account into an account in the Grand Cayman islands so then we get a a quick cut of harker finding out that Muir worked with harry duncan back in vietnam so he realizes that they're friends as well so at this point we get this yet another corny timestamp saying it's now 9 22 so in the blink of an eye basically three hours has gone by <laughs> Uh, we then cut back to Harker, who's now calling someone in the CIA to find out if any calls went out since this morning to Hong Kong, anywhere in the building. In the meantime, old Unger, he's going to leave work, and uh, God damn it, where's my pass? Right. I must have left it up in the office. So he turns right back around, and then we're back with Harker again, who finds out from the other stooge there that Muir had liquidated his funds and sent them to the Grand Cayman account. And then he asks for the amount. So they're writing down all this stuff. They're trying to, you know, they're scheming and plotting. They're they're basically trying to back Muir into a corner. Right. So meanwhile, Muir calls Harry Duncan in Hong Kong again from Unger's office, of course, asking for a safe place to fax the imagery analysis and then asks him if he still has a contact at the power company. Harry wants to know more, but Mir just hangs up too quickly and he's just like, okay. So from here, we're back with Harker again, who's seeing the phone call records and he sees that a call was placed from Unger's office. So he busts in there, but at that point, Unger's back in his office looking for his badge right. and what have you. Then we get another timestamp. Now it's 11.03 and we catch up to Mir, who's now in a different room faxing the imagery analysis out. 
Then we're back with Harker, and he goes back into Mira's office, but he's not there. And Harker's on his phone, and he's ordering someone to print them out and send them up, but we don't know what exactly. I don't even know the payoff for that, to be honest. Oh, well, he was... Maybe it's something to do with phone records or something. I think he's printing up the information to try and bury... To bury Mira, Mira when it when they... When all, he calls them out on the whole thing. When they reconvene the, the next day or yep. whatever. Yep. So then we come back to Mira, who's now hiding in some dark corner of the building. All the lights are out in this lounge that he's sitting in. And he gets a call back on his cell phone from Duncan. And Mira explains that Bishop piggybacked his mission on Sideshow and has already prepped the rescue plan as a plan B to the one that didn't work. And has someone on the inside of Sideshow to help him which happens to be Tran. So now we finally, finally circle back to Tran. Who, again, still never appears after all of this. I think he's in the room with, uh, what's his name in Hong Kong? With the guy from the power plant. Well, you know what I will say? There's an alternate ending to this movie. Okay. And they show, in the alternate ending, they show the team first coming into the prison. And you do see Tran there. Because Tran's part of the rescue of Bishop. So he's part of both rescue plans, essentially. He's part of the plan to rescue Elizabeth. And then he becomes the part of the mission to rescue Bishop. Both of them. them. Or both of them, yeah. All right, well, that makes more sense. (laughs) But still, in this movie, he doesn't show up anymore. He just disappears into the sunset. That's true. They cut him out. They cut him out. Unclip string. You know what he did was, he walked around the corner, he put on his ring, and he's like, shh, shh. <laughs> he a big old glowy, sparkly circle. That's right. And he, and he just stepped and, right through it into the Sanctum Sanctorum, and then <laughs> closed it up. That's right. Heimertage. <laughs> but I digress. Bishop had somebody on the inside of Sideshow to help him, who was Tran, who had all the schematics for the prison. So Mira then says that they need Duncan's contact at the power company to create a complete blackout for 30 minutes and that he needs bottom dollar for it all. So then Muir gets to work forging this directive from the director of intelligence using the signature he got on his certificate that he got this morning, since it's a actual signature. And then, of course, he's calling it Operation Dinner Out. Like the other operation from Beirut. Yes. So we then get a quick cut to Harker, still rifling through records, trying to find something. You get the feeling that Harker is just desperate, like just willing to find anything to to sink Muir. But... Mirror's just smarter. So then we're back to watching Mirror doing some painstaking forging work. He finishes at 2.55 a.m. How, how do we know it's 2.55? Well, well <laughs> <laughs> then Mir falls asleep and he has a dream of Bishop being executed. Yet another excuse to show Bishop. Right. All beat up and a gun to his head and then bang and he mere snaps awake. And right after that, he gets a call from Duncan saying that the power rep wants $500,000. And of course, Mir talks him down to the exact amount in his account, which is $282,000. Which he knew was exactly the amount of money he was going to get. Yes. So, <laughs> because, you know, he knows math well. I did like to, the, the nice little touch of... The, the power company guy named Meng, who is sitting in Duncan's office in Hong Kong watching Baywatch as this whole negotiation is going down. Very 91, actually. Sure. That's the one period thing that's actually accurate. <laughs> I love on the title credits. Pamela Denise Anderson, Yes. Right? <laughs> so now it's morning and we cut to Muir entering the task force room where the director of intelligence, Sai something, Wilson. 
He's in there standing in on the proceedings as well. And Harker then openly accuses Muir of working against them over the past 24 hours, saying that he called Harry Duncan from Unger's office. Muir responds that Harry is a friend and they were discussing a personal matter. Troy then adds that Harry has disappeared recently and Muir's like, well, good for him. He needs some time off. Right. Harker then brings up Muir moving his money around and Muir fires back saying, if you're going to accuse me of something, dude, just accuse me. Like, he's, he's ready for it. Right. And Harker then throws out this theory that the money was used to tip off Digger to leak the story to the CNN. And then Troy cuts in, though, kind of surprisingly, kind of adding. Well, after, after Muir glances at Troy. Yeah. You're going to let that happen kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. And Troy is, basically tells Harker to back off because Digger is MI6's man in Hong Kong. And that that newspaper is basically just a front. So Harker then plays his final chip in this poker game with the imagery analysis, which he believes is in China. But Muir then says he's he's like, well, and it's fun. You get this really long. There's a lot of looky looky back and forth where right? it's just silence, and you just wonder what's about to happen. But there's this glimmer in Redford's eye, and you know he's about to just slam dunk this fucker. Second mic drop of the night. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where he says, well, I'm guilty of using company resources. <laughs> For my own benefit. And he says that he was, you know, researching retirement property. And, of course, the exact dollar amount put in the Cayman account matches the brochure exactly. And then they hand over the brochure to the director. And he's like, you're an idiot. (laughs) Tell me what you know, Nathan. (laughs) Exactly. I had faith in you the whole time. (laughs) That's right. Folger, the director, then wants to sit in for the remainder of the Beirut story. They ask what happened to Hadley and... How did she wind up in the Chinese prison? And Muir explains that Hadley was a risk to Middle East ops and Bishop's life. So Muir brokered a trade with the Chinese government, Hadley for a U.S. diplomat accused of espionage. And that's when we get the longer version of that super quick cut we originally saw. Fruit cut. The fruit cut where... Hadley is, you know, somebody throws a bag over her head and they throw her in a van and then she's transferred to the prison in Suchow. So they then cleared out her apartment in Beirut and they forged the Dear John letter for Bishop to find. I find it funny, too, that the kind of the stooges in the room are kind of accusing Muir of underestimating Bishop's feelings for her. And he's like, well, yeah, Yeah, I did. (laughs) I did. What are you going to do about it? I mean, he left. (laughs) Clearly, he had more feelings than I knew. So... Just then, Gladys calls into the room. Mears picks it up to find out that Commander Wiley, the guy who's running the rescue op, is on the line. (laughs) And Wiley asks if dinner out is a go. (laughs) And Mears says, yep, dinner out's a go. (laughs) And the guys in the room are, are like making fun of him. He's like, dinner out's a go? Hell of a way to speak to your wife. Why do you think they keep dumping him? <laughs> and then we get another timestamp and dung, it's dung, 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 7 17 a.m. And then we see the uh the power go out over the island as the helicopters are descending on the prison, because now the operation is happening. And we cut back to the room in the CIA and they ask how Bishop found out where she was. And Mir said, Well, it was probably easy. White face in a Chinese prison, and a very attractive one at that, and that Bishop was well trained. Wink wink, nudge nudge. I'm good at my job. And then their final question, if you had known that he was going to go get her, would you have told us? And he's like, no. No. No, I wouldn't have. What no. are you going to do about no. it? And then, uh, and then we see the operation happen. And the 
Choppers land on the prison. They go get Bishop and Hadley. They're out of the building and we get another timestamp at 7.42. So then we're back at the CIA and they state that the CIA can't be held responsible for some rogue mission. So they're not going to get him out. And Muir kind of plays stupid and goes like, oh, shucky darn. <laughs> That's a shame. Right. Harker then tells Aiken to escort Muir from the building. Meanwhile, we see Bishop and Hadley getting loaded onto the choppers and fly away. And we get a little bit of intercutting because we know now that there's this time discrepancy happening where how long is it going to be before the CIA gets smart to what has just taken place? Right. So as Mira's leaving the building and the choppers are flying away, like, is he going to get out in time to try and escape the CIA, I guess? Or I don't know how the CIA would even get after Mira since he used his own funds. It was a forged signature. There's no way to truly trace him. But anyway... And I love watching them, like, all trying to piece it together. The guys in the task force right. room, they're like, so wait, he had four wives or five? And then there's one guy in the room that's like, no, he only had one, and she died or something like that. Yeah, it was in Korea. Yeah. And so they realized that all the other wives were, like, assets or agents or, you know, just cover wives. And we get that great little smiling moment from Bishop as they're in the helicopters, and, and the guy flying the helicopters like, He's talking to the command area over through the helicopter. like, <laughs> Operation Dinner Out was a success. And Bishop's all like, what was that? He's like, nothing important, sir. No, what was the name of the mission? Uh, Operation Dinner Out. And he's all like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, in his beat up <laughs> smile face. Yeah, right. <laughs> I look just like this in Fight Club. <laughs> uh, so Do I look 40 now. <laughs> And they do that that dissolve from from Bishop smiling into Muir putting his sunglasses on in his car and driving away. And he's not out yet, just yet. And then they cut back into the room and Troy gets the phone call and he takes it in the other room. And then we cut back to Muir leaving the gates. He's like giving the little the little salute to the guy at the Right. At the last gate, and he... I'm Audi 5000. Audi 5000. And Troy gets off the phone. He goes, there's been an incident in China. Right. And the, I love that the last thing you see in that task force room is Harker going, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and then he drives away saying, suck it, Harker. <laughs> right. And that is... Uh, that's, that's our movie. End. That's the movie. We did it. We did it. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, any final thoughts on the movie? Well, like I, I think I said earlier, I, I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. It is up there with the Scottiest of Scott movies. Very much so. The toniest of Tony Scott movies. Yes. Um, well, well photographed. It's pretty. It's a pretty movie. Yeah. When they're not doing weird things with editing. Right. And I mean... I would watch Robert Redford read a phone book. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, he is the best part of the whole thing. Absolutely. I might be maybe the last, I won't say it was the last movie that he was a principal actor in that I liked, per se. Yeah. I, I haven't think, followed Redford enough to He to kind really of started say. really hitting the director thing at that point. Yeah. You know, so I think Indecent Proposal, I think that was before, actually. Yeah. So I think he was in that directing vein through most of the early 2000s. He wasn't really... Because I remember when he came into uh, Winter Soldier, I was like, whoa, is he Bob in anything in a while? Right. Right? You know, because yeah. we're like that. We're tight. We, I can call him Bob. <laughs> yeah. Him and De Niro. I call them both Bob. Um, <laughs> except that I've never met them. So I can... Yeah, you know, I've never called it to them in their face. Right. Of course um, not. But, you know, it, it was <laughs> it was enjoyable. It was not a chore to watch the second time. Yeah. You know, 
I don't know that I necessarily need to watch it again. I think yeah. I've gotten everything out of this that I need to get. Yeah. But if somebody was like, hey, have you ever seen this movie Spy Game? I'd be like, I have. It's the Scottiest of Tony Scott movies. And they'd be like, would you mind watching it? And I'd be like, yeah, it's not like it's true lies. So, <laughs> so yeah, I think I think we're good. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's a flawed movie. I think that from what I read about the trivia, I get the impression that this movie, Tony Scott was fighting a lot of issues all the way through this movie. There were a lot of things going on where he didn't get his way. He wanted more time with Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt was on the verge of starting to work on Ocean's, Ocean's Eleven. Yep. The producers clearly were at odds with him right. on a number of occasions, including the one that we mentioned about the helicopter shot. I just feel like there were a lot of areas where he didn't get his way. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think maybe that's also part of the reason why maybe some of those bad editorial decisions were made were because they didn't have the opportunity to smooth some of those transitional things out or find a better way to do it. Yeah. That being said, it's still on Tony Scott that he let Christian Wagner go wild with his overly stylistic-y things. And it's also on the director. Like, the sound effects drove me crazy for that stuff because they were so loud. It's like, it's one thing to use sound effects in a movie. It's another thing to have them so loud that they stop you from doing anything else but listening to them. Right. And granted, that was his objective in doing that. It's still not a great look. especially now now it feels incredibly dated those little moments but if anybody asked me if they should watch this movie i would say absolutely Absolutely, yeah because robert redford is so good in it yeah he's killing it he's absolutely crushing it he looks fantastic in a uh a turtleneck. I'm telling you, it makes me want us to watch Three Days to Condor even more Absolutely. when he actually was that age in right. the 70s that he's supposed to be. In well, I mean, that's happening. So I know, that's, I know, that's definitely going to happen. So, in fact, the trivia even said that Tony Scott considered this to be almost a sequel to that, like movie. a spiritual, a spiritual sequel. sequel to that character. But uh, yeah, I mean, great watch. I didn't even mind. You know, seeing it three times for the for the review and whatnot, and so did one more time than me. So what a trooper! Indeed, indeed. (laughs) But uh, but yeah, I must say thank you to our uh, special anonymous operative in the field that uh, we spoke about in a previous Intel report, actually, who uh, turned our heads to this particular movie, and I think it turned out pretty well. Yeah, I think it was definitely a good call, a mission worth uh, accepting, a mission definitely worth accepting. Please feel free to bring us more. Indeed, because, because we'd rather do ones that you want to listen to than listen or movies that you rather listen to us talk to than ones that we just mutually think we want to talk about. Indeed. Because this is for you. That's right. We do it for you. I did it all for you. It's all for you. <laughs> That's right. And if there's one thing that we beat you over the head with over and over again on this podcast is how much we love listener interaction. So uh, please let us know. We have many outlets on email at cicdeaddrop at gmail.com on instagram at central intelligence separated by underscores or on x at cic spy pod and there's a bunch of other places that you can check us out and i have links to all of them at the bottom of the show description of this very episode so please get in touch and uh, hey, if you're enjoying the podcast, you should uh, show off your love of this podcast by uh, giving us a glowing, effervescent five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast from, so that uh, our show gets seen faster when people search for stuff like this, even when we're not doing silly spy shit, just spy shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, any last words, Jason? Nope. All righty then. Well, with that, I'm Ben. And I'm Jason. And the CIC will return with more missions, more martinis, and more mayhem.